looking at a remarkable idea. An idea that has intrigued and attracted and literally thrilled thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children. And you, my friends, are about to witness this idea become a reality. For this is the story of the miracle sea in the desert. Welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I'm a mere figment of your imagination. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Live and direct right now. On the TuneIn Radio app, search End of Days and you'll find the 24-7 network. My guest tonight on this very special edition of End of Days, Jim Fetzer, a former Marine Corps officer. He has published widely on the theoretical foundations of scientific knowledge, computer science, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, and evolution and mentality. A graduate of Princeton who majored in philosophy he earned his Ph.D. in the history and the philosophy of science. He has received many awards and forms of recognition for his teaching and scholarship. Now let's go with Jim. Jim, are you there? I, I sure am, Michael, and it's a real pleasure to be back with you again. I'm here. I'm here. Perfect. Real pleasure to be back yes. with you again. Perfect, perfect. And welcome back to the program, first and foremost. It's always an honor and privilege to speak to you live on the air, Jim. Well, for whatever reason, Michael, I really like doing shows with you. There's something about your manner, your voice, your disposition, your intelligence, your articulation. I really find comfortable. You know, I wasn't going to say this to you here on the air, but many of your listeners and followers, Jim, really do appreciate you being here. They see you more than just a guest on this program. Um, they believe this program here is your extended home, and I fully agree with them. Well, that's, that's a wonderful thought, Michael. I like that. I like that very much. And uh, Oh, yeah. They, they I, love you, Jim. I get so much positive feedback every time you're here. Well, in a way, Michael, I think it's because there's uh, so little uh, truth out in the media these days that the mainstream has gone whole hog propaganda. And, of course, we know now the platforms that have banned InfoWars and Alex Jones, for example. Right. I mean, here's a guy who's, you know, very, very prominent on the Internet. I don't find him all that extraordinary. He simply talks about issues that deserve discussion, not always in a thoroughgoing way. For example, my principal fault with Alex is in relation to 9-11. And other uh, matters, he won't talk about the role of Israel, but 9-11 was brought to us, compliments of the CIA, the neocons, and the Department of Defense, and the Mossad. The whole idea was to create a pretext for drawing the United States into endless wars in the Middle East to take out the modern Arab states that serve as a counterbalance to Israel's domination of the entire region and eventually to confront the Persian nation of Iran. Now, it hasn't played out that way because of the intervention of Russia and Iran in Syria. 
where even the Israeli Minister of Defense has acknowledged the war in Syria is over, not for lack of effort, and Israel was giving medical aid to ISIS forces, uh, whereas many of your l- listeners are aware, uh, the United States created ISIS in 2012 when Hillary was uh, Secretary of Defense, John Brennan, uh, CIA, and Barack Obama president. In fact, Michael Flynn, who was at the time the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, opposed this move. Uh, but they wanted to do it to bring pressure on Syria and eventually to confront Iran, and they overrode his opposition. In fact, subsequently, John Brennan would recommend to Barack Obama that he fire Flynn, uh, not because of any degree of incompetence, but because he opposed the creation of ISIS. I mean, here you have this monster terrorist organization that has created mayhem throughout the Middle East. I mean, you know murdered hundreds of thousands without any doubt, rape, pillaging, you know, all sorts of atrocities. We were responsible for ISIS. Right, right. It it seems like we have a relationship of of doing such acts. I mean, just look at the whole uh, drug and arms trafficking. Remember uh, Eric Holder? Yeah, Fast and Furious and all that. Right, yeah. Eric, still Eric Holder, interestingly, also figures in Sandy Hook, which we want to uh, uh, get to, because Alex has largely been pilloried of late uh, because of this lawsuit over Sandy Hook. Frankly, I thought what was going on was a setup, that Alex, who's been on both sides of the issue, Sandy Hook, sometimes saying he thought it was all fake, sometimes saying he thought kids really were killed, the evidence is simply overwhelming. I mean, the school was closed in 2008. Uh, it was loaded with asbestos and other biohazards. We have multiple lines of proof. Uh, uh, you can even tell that the school was closed from an aerial photograph of the parking lot, as I frequently observe, because it doesn't have the familiar blue and white uh, signage for handicapped parking, the blue and white handicapped parking spaces, which means that on 14 December 2012, it was in violations of the legal requirements for Americans with Disability Act, which dictate that there must be this special kind of parking and that all entrances and exits must be wheelchair accessible. I mean, here's another proof. There's a photograph of a, of an, a wooden staircase exit that no wheelchair could navigate that happens to have a steel rod sticking out, which could pop out the eye of a little kid if he were to run into it, not noticing. I mean, this was a kindergarten through the fourth grade school. I mean, it's ridiculous. This was an elementary school. And it was totally unsuited for, you know, conducting uh, school affairs. The the temperature that day, the ground temperature was 28 degrees Fahrenheit. That's below freezing. So if you'd had students in the building, you it would have had to have been heated. But there's no heat or steam rising from the building. Undoubtedly, because the boilers were dysfunctional from lack of use for all those years. And then if you look at the parking lot, you see all the center rows of vehicles are all parked facing the building, which, of course, is quite striking because you can see the the driving instructions that are painted on the roadway to come in from Dickinson Drive, turn right, curl around, and park facing away. But it was obviously just too tempting to bring the vehicles in in a single file and put them in two by two by two facing the building. They thought no one would even notice. But right. it's, 
it, it's that bad, Michael. It's that blatant so that, you know, anyone who's been paying attention ought to know better than to be taken in by this elaborate fraud, which, of course, managed to scam the American people of between 27 and $130 million, which was divided between the 26 fake families. And I say that with 100% assurance. No one's going to come after me. I've been making this point for a very long time. I published the book Nobody Died at Sandy Hook in 2015. Yeah, this is something I've asked you plenty of times if you are ever worried that some of the family would perhaps come across your name. But you you show uh, no signs of of any kind of fear whatsoever, Jim. Well, it's the other way around. I mean, truth is an absolute defense. In fact, that's why these lawsuits against Alex are so ridiculous. I mean, the school was closed. Uh, In fact, uh, we have a a fellow who was visiting a friend not too distant from Sandy Hook in 2010, and unbeknownst to him, the friend was going to the school to pick up a couple of school desks on the cheap for his kids to use at home. And when they, he drove over with him together, he, he himself being a contractor just described the deplorable state of the school. He said the caretaker there told them that, that it was condemned. The parking lot looked totally bereft of any use. In fact, we have some photographs that show that parking lot absent a feature that most parking lots have, which is oil stains. I mean, that's totally pedestrian, Michael, but it indicates that the parking lot was so much not in use at the weather, and there was a, you know, this building had been damaged by a hurricane. There was a major flood in 2007. Uh, the, the, the weather, since it had been closed, was so substantial that it had even washed away the oil stains. I mean, you know, this is ridiculous. Right. And, in fact, if, if you look carefully at photographs, and we can go through this in some detail, there's furniture pushed up against the window of classroom 10, which is right at the front of the building, furniture pushed up against the window. In fact, we have videos inside and out, inside and out, Michael, and the place was being used for storage. In fact, we've had these up for so long. At one point, we had, uh, you know, all kinds of comments on the video by former teachers who saying, yes, that's what school districts do with an abandoned school. They use it for storage. And there's all kinds of riffraff there stored. The inside was in deplorable. It looked like a graffiti. You had, you know, leaky areas and so forth. It was in a terrible state. They'd removed a single commode, which a plumber also commented, said they made an effort to make it look as though it were handicap accessible, but it obviously was not, as I've already explained. I mean, we're just talking about the parking lot and the condition of the school, Michael, and already we have conclusive evidence that this was an elaborate hoax. It was a fraud. And, and what was being perpetrated here was theft by deception. In other words, the fake families that divided all that money, they wound up with more than a million bucks apiece for pretending to have lost kids at Sandy Hook, uh, were perpetrating a fraud on the public and, Therefore, I've observed in some of my articles, and and I'm so under siege that someone has been coming in and actually taking down some of my most important proofs that Sandy Hook was a hoax, which others have observed as a confirmation that I'm right on target. But we're doing a new memorandum series about Sandy Hook with Robert David Steele, and it's, it's just shaping up beautifully. And I don't think after this 
series of memorandum I project will have 18 to 20. We have yeah, by the five, way, uh, five or six. Hi, yeah, Jim, yeah. I have to cut you off really quickly and say, have you done an interview with uh, Robert yet? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, on a couple of occasions, I, I interviewed him, and I think my interview with him, which was a, with a real deal, is up at uh, 153news.net in all probability, because most of my shows go up there. Gus Chambers has been wonderful about putting my programs up there. Now, I want to emphasize, if you're looking for my stuff. Yeah, people are looking, yeah, people are looking for your, your content, Jim. So go ahead and tell the audience where they could find all your material and where they can hear you live. Well, look, the, the radio show, see, the, the raw deal, which I do Tuesday, Thursday on Revolution Radio on Studio B, it's from, Four to six Eastern, three to five Central, one to three Pacific. On Tuesdays, I give a, a update of all the news, the major stories of the previous week. And w- what I do, Michael, is I videotape it so you can see the stories I'm talking about. And the videos I send to Gus, who puts them up on 153news.net. So if you look, if you go to 153news.net and either search on Gus Chambers or Jim Fetzer, or the raw deal, you could get those shows. And I do a lot of others. For example, I just interviewed a, a, a Dean uh, Wigington, who's an expert on geoengineering. Uh, we had a very nice uh, interview. And that also is up uh, at 153news.net. Now, some of my stuff also goes up at BitChute. And, of course, the reason is, so much of my stuff on YouTube has been taken down. I mean, it's really a travesty, but it's part and parcel of all this Internet censorship. I mean, Mike Adams interviewed me, you know, after uh, uh, an interview he'd done with me when the book was banned back in 2015 was taken down by YouTube. I mean, he was shocked. Yes, so was our interviews, Jim. Too. Yeah, our interviews right. too, Michael. So, I mean, how, abs- how absurd is this? It really is. And, Jim, I, I got to say this to you, and I've been transparent with the audience, and I'm, I must say my opinion on Alex Jones, there, there's been plenty of gimmickry, in my opinion, and I don't have an issue with certain things that he says or does. However, this is atrocious, uh, taking away his right to freedom of speech. And this latest battle with corporate America is real. Well, listen, uh, it's, it's very important to have opportunities to raise questions about politically significant issues. Understood, that, yes. It, that's the important role of Alex Jones. It's not whether he's got the last word. I would say more often than not, he doesn't. But in order for you to sort things out, you have to start thinking outside the box. And what he does is encourage that as a necessary stage in 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 uh in figuring out what's going on i mean it, it's even implicit in scientific uh, inquiry which has four steps or stages the first of which is puzzlement there's something taking place doesn't fit into your background knowledge doesn't seem to make sense you want to understand it better which precipitates speculation what are the possible theories or hypotheses that might explain the data that would enable us to understand it, which is the area where Alex Jones is valuable. He he not only invites attention to puzzling situations where it's just not obvious what's going on or 
there are signs that what's going on is somehow contrived, fabricated, purely political, uh, staged, uh, a fakery, a hoax, and so forth. Uh, and then we start considering the full range of alternative possibilities. I mean, go, go, you, you see this in JFK 9-11, Sandy Hook, and so forth. I'll come back as illustrations. But the third stage is then to take a look at the available evidence, and the crucial aspect of that is sorting out the authentic from the inauthentic evidence, which was particularly important in JFK because there's a mass of inauthentic evidence, manufactured, fabricated evidence, I mean, they not only stole the body from Dallas, where they had a wonderful medical examiner by the name of Earl Rose, who would have given JFK a first-class autopsy, uh, but they deliberately stole it to, to get it under military control, and they actually altered the body physically at Bethesda. They enlarged the nice, clean puncture wound to the throat to make it look more like a gaping exit wound when it was clearly an entry wound as Malcolm Perry, M.D., who'd actually performed a simple tracheostomy incision through the wound at the time, reported during the Parkland press conference held after uh, the announcement was made that the president was dead, where the acting press secretary explained it was a simple matter of a bullet right through the head pointing to his right temple, which was one of the two shots that were widely broadcast on radio and television that day. In fact, Michael, is just astonishing. If you go back to... NBC, ABC, CBS, uh, NBC in particular, I, I know rather well. They were talking about these two wounds, the wound to the throat, uh, which was described as an entry wound, and uh, they were certainly citing Malcolm Perry because he'd explained three different times to the assembled reporters there at Parkland that it was an entry wound, the bullet was coming at him. So that was getting out on the air. And subsequently, they were reporting, you know, a simple matter of a bullet right through the head, as Malcolm Kildoff, the acting press secretary, observed. Um, uh, Schlesinger, the regular press secretary, was not on the scene. That may or may not have been contrived to get him out of the way, because he would have been very aware of improprieties regarding security. Just as they got Fletcher Prouty, who was a liaison between the Pentagon and the CIA and the White House on covert activities, they sent him down to the South Pole because he could have taken one look at the motorcade and seen this was a setup. Yeah, the presidential limousine right out front when it ought to have been in the middle. All the vehicles were different makes and colors, but that's all completely improper. They canceled the 110th Military Intelligence Unit, which should have been distributed through the city to, for crowd control over the adamant opposition of its commanding officer. Two of the Secret Service agents who were assigned to the vehicle, the presidential limousine, who would have rid on, on the back or run alongside were left behind at Love Field to their complete astonishment and bewilderment, uh, just a matter of stripping security. The manhole covers were not welded shut. They didn't even cover the open windows. I mean, all of this are gross violations of Secret Service protocol. Then the, the motorcade was given an improper route and had a 110-degree turn. You went up Maine, and according to the route that was actually published in the newspaper, you went straight up Maine and then made access onto the Simmons Freeway to get to the trademark where JFK was going to speak. Uh, which was a change, by the way, from the original location, the Women's Forum, which was very secure and been approved by the Secret Service. This change occurred just four days before, where the trademark was highly unsafe, insecure, many entrances and exit balconies and all that sort of thing, 
plenty of places of concealment, uh, access and regress by assassins. Uh, so, I mean, that, that was a, a, another fallback. You know, if they had not taken him out in Dealey Plaza, they would have taken him out at the trademark. And then he was supposed to have spend overnight on the Johnson Ranch. And that was the third and least desirable because Lyndon Johnson was the primary force behind the assassination, but it also had a, certainty of success because he could control everything on his rather expansive estate. So they, they altered the body. Believe it or not, the, the commander James Humes, a naval officer who had never performed an autopsy on a gunshot victim before, took a cranial saw to the skull of JFK and it expanded a fist-sized wound at the back of his head, which was even, was first observed and described by uh, Clint Hill, who rushed forward. We all know about Clint rushing forward. He actually was Jackie's security guy. When Jackie crawled out on the back of the trunk after a chunk of Jack's skull and brains, Clint Hill rushed forward and pushed her back in the seat and lay across their bodies and peered into this gaping fist-side hole at the back of the head, recognizing this was a fatal wound. He was already dead. He turned to his colleagues and gave him a thumbs down. Now, all that had to be taken out. They, they, they had the FBI agents stationed at all the photo, photo developing laboratories around Dallas for two weeks, and they took any photos and films related to Dealey Plaza and left a little card, a copy of which you can find in Richard Trask's book, Pictures of the Pain, so that they would have all the photographic evidence under their control. They had people who were studying everyone in the crowd, all the spectators, so that Gene Hill and Mary Mormon, for example, who were who'd actually stepped into the street after calling out, hey, Mr. President, look over here. We want to take your picture. And Mary wound up taking a very significant Polaroid just moments after that shot to the to the head, because you can even see this clump of his skull on his right shoulder if you look carefully at the photograph. They were apprehended in, immediately afterward. I mean, this is just absurd. They were relieved of the photographs. So Mary had been taking the photographs. Gene was putting a preservative on it with the old Polaroids. You had to coat them and put them in her pocket. And they were keeping such close attention. She knew she had the photographs in her pocket. And they took her to a building and gave her an interrogation. And when they asked her, you know, how many shots she'd heard, and she started talking about four or more, they said, no, that's impossible. There are only three. You know what I mean? Obviously, they couldn't know there were only three. In fact, there were eight, nine, or ten as a minimum. Uh, there may have even been a few more. Jim, were- I must, Jim, I must stop you just to say quickly that I am astonished that people – are still completely interested in the JFK assassination. And I mean that in a positive way. It, it just seems that we still have not gotten all the truth yet. Well, it's the greatest murder mystery in history. It's insane, yes. Yeah. I've actually published four books on JFK. Uh, I, I began uh, collaborating in uh, 2000 and, let's see, t- uh, two. Uh, no, in, in, let's see, uh, 1992. Actually, was, uh, just, 1992, just before the 30th observance in 1993. I actually have your book, Assassination Science. Excellent. Now that, that book, book has been through about 14 printings, Michael. That has been my most successful book in terms of sales. Yeah, I got it on and, Amazon, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've got uh, my th- my three original three JFK books were on Amazon. Uh, they they didn't ban any of them. Interesting. In fact, in fact, it was absurd they banned my Sandy Hook book because it had already sold nearly 500 copies in 
in, in less than a month. I mean, but of course that was the problem. It was destined to be a bestseller. I don't know if I ever told you what happened there, but I was contacted by first edition. They told me they wanted to interview me about our research on Sandy Hook, but I had to do a pre-interview first. And I found myself in a basement operation at Langley. I have no doubt about it at all, where I was confronted by a professional interrogator who asked, you know, no pleasantries, how are you, you know, Baba, we really like your book. He just began saying, what have you got? And I started explaining, you know, how we had all this evidence is that the, the school had been closed by 2008. There were no students there. Uh, 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 what else have you got? And I start talking about, well, we got 50 photographs of them furnishing an empty house to be the serve as the Adam Lands. What else have you got? 50 more photographs of refurbishing the school uh, to serve as the stage, including a classic where the SWAT team vehicle is there. Before the event has taken place, you can tell because just above the vehicle, you can see a string of four windows. In other words, in other words, Jim, they didn't like you. Well, they wanted to find out how much evidence we had. And the, the fact is I kept laying it on and laying it on till not as he decided that, you know, there was enough and two days later it was banned. In other words, this oh, was an boy. interrogation. I see. Was, they didn't even bother reading the book. They just got me to use me as an information extractor about what was in the book, and it was obvious to them from the conversation we had. I mean, Michael forgot to even have the FEMA manual for the two-day exercise with um, a rehearsal on the 13th going live on the 14th. Right. By the way, Jim, before we wrap it up with the JFK assassination, there was another thing I, I was curious about, and that was uh, Bill Riley's book. He actually wrote a book himself called Killing Kennedy. Did you ever read that? Well, Bill Riley is just going to be, you know, giving a flimsy version of the Warren Commission. Well, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, but the fact is Lee Oswald, and this is a, another aspect of this, not only was there all the obvious evidence that there was funny business with Lee Oswald, that the backyard photographs had been manufactured, even Photoshop, we've now been able to discover who it was who stood in for Lee in the backyard photographs. It was Roscoe White, who was an, a Dallas Police Department uh, officer with ties to the CIA, who inc- incidentally appears to have been responsible for assassinating as many as 50 of the witnesses who died mysterious deaths. Oliver Stone did a pretty good job. Oliver Stone uh, 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 did an excellent job in, in, to this good. extent. It is the most accurate, complete, and comprehensive presentation of what actually happened in Dealey Plaza ever presented to the public through the mass media. There are three uh, significant defects, which were not really, in my opinion, his fault, but they're flaws in the film. Number one, he has three hit teams when, you know, I've identified at least six and there may have been a seventh. I can tell you where they were, what shots they fired, their name, rank, and serial numbers. This was, uh, I think, because he was under the influence of Robert Grodin, who to this day insists that the Zapruder film is authentic and who was hired as a special advisor to the House Select Committee on Assassinations when it reinvestigated the case in 19. 19- 77-78, to dispel rumors that Lee Oswald had been in the doorway of the book depository at the time of the shooting. He came back and said he'd done a pixel study of the, the of Lee's shirt and of Billy Lovelady, that's a government's candidate, uh, 
uh, uh, shirt, and he had concluded that Billy Loveladies was a closer match than Lee, which is on multiple grounds. Number one, Billy Lovelady was wearing a short sleeve, red and white. And the, the FBI actually had him in on the 29th of February, 1964, took photographs of him wearing this shirt. He doesn't look at all like the man in the doorway who has a long sleeve, richly, richly textured shirt. Oh, my goodness. By the way, I think Dan Cromer has joined us here. And, Dan, please um, turn off your uh, stream there. The, the fact of the matter is that we had already established the FBI actually had it on the 29th of Oh, my goodness. I don't know what's going on with him. <laughs> I might have to uh, drop his call there for him to fix whatever that was, Jim. Well, let's see what happens now. We'd already determined by the height and weight to build. Yeah, maybe a better, Michael. Oh, there we go. The height, the weight, and the build, the shirt, and the T-shirt were this indistinguishable from the height, the weight, the build, the shirt, and the T-shirt Lee Oswald was wearing when he was arrested. In fact, it was such a striking similarity that the Dallas police, who were the primary operatives in framing Lee, which is in part why it was done in such a half Ass incompetent <laughs> right. Yes. Had him, had him take out his otter shirt for his mugshot. They photographed him in his t-shirt. Well, that's pretty bizarre. I mean, there was no good reason to do that except that they didn't want the obvious similarity between Lee in this shirt, uh, and the man in the doorway to be obvious. Ed, Ed Tatro, who's very well known in the JFK research community, has had many conversations with Marina, Lee's wife, whom he married in Russia, who is the niece of a KGB agent. And Marina has confirmed having washed that shirt. In other words, she knew this long sleeve, richly textured shirt. Here's a great here's a great irony when Judith Baker, who is Lee's girlfriend in New Orleans, uh contributed to a series of studies we were doing about the backyard photograph. Uh, I mean about the uh it's called the Alchin Six because it was taken by AP photographer James Ike Alchins, and he, he's supposed to have taken seven photographs, but he can't remember taking the seventh, which appears to be a fabrication. It's looking at the limousine from behind, and you see Clint Hill sort of astride the trunk, and it, it's an odd photograph. He didn't remember taking it. I'm, some of us are rather convinced that that's because he didn't take it. But the photograph he took before is the most famous of the assassination. It's technically known as the Alchin Six. And you can see the presidential limousine in the foreground. The agents are looking around. Jack's already been hit in the throat. If you know where to look, you can see the bullet hole in the windshield. It's where his left ear would be if his left ear were visible. It's a small white spiral nebula with a dark hole in the center. Uh, and, you know, the agents actually appear to be looking at the doorway where you see this figure who seems to be extending out to see what's going on. That that looks strikingly like Lee Oswald. In fact, right. Harold Weisberger in his whitewash series in his second volume, A Photographic Whitewash, 1966, was talking about in the back pages how the Warren Commission staff was having a terrible time obfuscating the fact that Oswald had been in the doorway. Even Jim Garrison, who, of course, brought the prosecution against Clay Shaw in New Orleans for involvement in the assassination, which he almost certainly would have won had it been not, not been for the mysterious death of his three most important witnesses, 
also believed that it was Lee in the doorway, and their beliefs were well-founded because it was Lee in the doorway. And the idea it could have been Billy Lovelady was just ridiculous. Billy himself said he thought it was odd they'd be confounded because he was two to three inches shorter than Lee, 15 to 20 pounds heavier, actually more than that. And and was wearing a short sleeve red white vertically striped shirt, not at all remotely like this. Which, as I began to explain on the 29th of February 1964, the FBI had come in wearing the shirt that he'd worn on that occasion, photographed him wearing it, and in the report they sent to FBI headquarters to J. Edgar Hoover at the end of the very first paragraph, it says this was the shirt he was wearing on the at the time of the assassination. Yeah, it's interesting. The evidence is that Oswald was in fact in front of the building there, and plenty of people saw him. Right, that's right, exactly what I'm talking about, how we've confirmed. Larry Rivera, who's proven to be quite adept at this, found uh, photographs of the faces of Lee and of Billy, which by a simple inversion, you know, a left-right reversal, were perfect to superimpose over the facial features in the doorway, of the man in the doorway, and found that it fits Lee Oswald hand in glove, but doesn't fit Billy. The ears are wrong, the chin is wrong, the nose is wrong. I mean, it's obviously Lee Oswald and not Billy Lovelady, who is the only candidate the government has offered as an alternative, so it fails. But, you know, just, just to mention briefly about Alex Jones, here are the platforms that have banned InfoWars and Alex Jones. Facebook, YouTube, Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn. Spreaker, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Pinterest, MailChimp, Stitcher, Discus, Sprout Social, LinkedIn. I mean, what in God's name is going on yeah, here? Yeah, he lost a great number of revenue, I must imagine. Well, listen, there's been a, uh, it's backfired because he has a new newsletter and within 48 hours, he had acquired 6 million subscribers to his newsletter. My God. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and get this. Even the New York Times had to admit that the, this was a rather stunning development. They quoted an expert. Here, here are two paragraphs of this report from the Times. The surge it suggests the tech industry's recent action against InfoWars has drawn new interest to the fringe outlet and the conspiracy theories it peddles. And by the way, the the New York Times is right in there, you know, pitching the false versions, the fake news about the moon landing, about JFK, about 9-11, about Sandy Hook, about the Boston bombing, you name it. If you want a false report in copious detail, read the New York Times. But here's an expert here. Jonathan Kay, co-founder of Aptopia, an app analytics firm, said, this is uh, uh, such a niche app with niche content that for it to make that sort of jump, you know, means that it has become very interesting to a much broader audience. Essentially, it's gone from being niche to being mainstream. And this is where, you know, Alex has picked up 6 million subscribers. Now, I didn't quite complete going through those steps of scientific reasoning. I came to the point where, you have to, you know, assess the alternative hypotheses on the basis of the probability they confirm upon the available evidence if they were true. For example, if Lee Oswald had been the shooter, then the probability we'd have a photograph that we've been able to verify that would show him in the doorway would be zero. If he, because if he's in the doorway, he not he cannot have been the lone gunman. He can't have been a shooter. 
And we also know the backyard photographs are faked. And as I mentioned, Roscoe White stood in for Lee, and then they pasted his face over Roscoe White's body. And Larry has found, a, you know, a wonderful photograph of Roscoe at the beach that was perfect to superimpose it was Roscoe White without any doubt. And many questions had been raised about the backyard photographs. But if, it, if this evidence were authentic, there wouldn't be any reason to question it. But, in fact, the face is the same on these four different poses, uh, which were taken at slightly different times and slightly different positions. There's no way optically they could be exactly the same if, if this had been authentic. So what's the probability of Lee really where it was the gunman and these were real photographs that would have these inauthentic features? Again, it's zero. So once you find they have these. But if it was faked, on the other hand, if Lee was being framed and they didn't do it in a completely artful fashion, then the probability you'd find these anomalies is very high. By the way, Jim, um, I always thought this myself, and many people have echoed this. Um, Do you believe JFK was our last real president. Oh, I think that's a very reasonable observation. We had a whole series of presidents who would never have held that position. But for his death, beginning with the LBJ, and then Nixon, Hubert Humphrey could easily have succeeded Lyndon, especially because of the sympathy uh, he garnered over the death of his predecessor, the public being unaware that he was the mastermind behind the assassination to make himself president, for which is a mountain of evidence. Uh, who, who, Herbert Hoover, I mean, uh, Hubert Humphrey could have been his successor, but Lyndon held off campaigning for him until the election was basically already decided. LBJ your, hated Kennedy, by the way. Oh, sure, of course, yeah. He had the most to gain, so easily. I, mm-hmm. Well, he forced himself on the ticket in L.A., uh, uh, Michael, in order to set it up uh, for Jack to be taken out. I mean, here, here's what happened. Uh, Jack had actually invited Stuart Symington, senator from Missouri, to be his running mate, but gave him overnight to think about it. Meanwhile, Bobby went by the Johnson suite and extended a pro forma or courtesy invitation to Lyndon, never imagining he'd even think about it twice. It was dumbfounded when he jumped on it. Threatening to expose that Jack had Addison's disease, wasn't expected to live a long, healthy life, that he, among the women he'd cavorted with, were, uh, some were East German spies. This was information provided to him by J. Edgar Hoover. And moreover, that if he were not on the ticket, then any legislative proposal sent down from the White House would be dead on arrival because in his position as a powerful Senate majority leader, he'd bottle them up now. Jack and Bobby tried to figure a way around it, but they realized Lyndon had boxed them in and had to accede to his demand. When one of Lyndon's wealthy backers heard about this, he was furious, burst into the Johnson suite cursing and swearing because now LBJ was going to help JFK become president. Bobby Baker took him into a bedroom and explained what they had in mind. He came out all smiles and said he thought that was an excellent plan. Bobby would later declare in public that JFK would not live out his first term and that he would die a violent death. And indeed, as events played out, Lyndon set his chief administrative assistant, Cliff Carter, down to Dallas to make sure all the arrangements were in place for the assassination. By the way, if you got Dan, you know, if Dan's there, I mean, Dan's a super good guy. Yes, that was. After research, I'd be mm -hmm. delighted to bring Dan into the conversation since obviously that was... uh, a part of the agenda. I was I mean, waiting I mean, for Dan to chime in, but he's not talking. 
Well, Dan, I'm sure was waiting your awaiting your invitation. Oh, he's but, he's ready to go anytime. But but the fact is, this is really mass, massively backfired. I do think a lot of it had to do with uh, Sandy Hook. Now, let me just mention, you know, Alex Jones has been under lawsuits that are completely yes, based. lots of lawsuits. Now, by the way, speaking of which, he not only finds himself in a legal battle with parents from the Sandy Hook incident. Uh, hello, gentlemen. Oh, there he is. Dan, how are you? <laughs> yeah, go, go ahead, Michael. Uh, Dan, yes, we're just hey, talking hey, about Alex. Can you guys hear me? Oh, loud and yeah. clear. We can hear you, Mike, uh, Dan, but Michael was making a point here about these lawsuits against Alex Jones. Go ahead, Michael. Yes, not only is he in a legal battle with the parents from the uh, Sandy Hook incident, and, of course, now his ex-wife, as you know or may not know, there's nothing like a woman scorned, and uh, things are going to get nasty. She even launched a website called UnplugInfoWars.com. Uh, Jim, um, how do you feel about this? Well, the lawsuits are completely without foundation. What I don't understand and what has bothered me about them is that Alex Jones is well aware of the massive evidence we have since uh, we published the book, which even includes, as I mentioned, the FEMA manual for the two-day exercise. We've been able to prove how they faked the kids using photographs of older kids when they were younger. Noah Posner, who's supposed to be Lenny's son, where Lenny is one of the plaintiffs in the Texas trial, was made up out of photographs of Michael Vabner, who is supposed to be his older stepbrother. Uh, and now additional research by Mona Alexis Presley, to which Dan himself has contributed, has established that we have all these photographs of Lenny Posner with Noah Posner, uh, and now we find out Noah Posner is actually Michael Vabner. So what is Lenny Posner doing in all these photographs with Michael Vabner? Well, the guy who calls himself Lenny Posner actually is the father of the the child he's with because his real name is Reuben Vabner. And there are a whole host of reasons why Reuben Vabner has gone out of his way not to allow his image in its current incarnation to be broadcast because he, does, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't want people to recognize that, hey, I know that guy, it's Reuben Vabner. You know, the whole thing's phony, fake. Alex knows this. And, Michael, the problem I have is Alex isn't using this massive information we have. Dan, for some reason, if you have the show on, so you got to turn it off because you'll get feedback. But you know that. I mean, Dan's, a, Dan's an IT guy, so he knows. Is, is Dan even – uh-oh, I think he went off there. Well, we don't have the background noises. Yeah, he, I think he might have hung up there. But the, the, the fact Go is, ahead. okay, listen, I reached out to the judge in Texas and wrote him. I, I wrote actually to his clerk. Yes. To explain that there's a, there's a, a fraud being perpetrated on the court because Lenny Posner in this case, as he did in a prior case against Wilking Helbig, has given a false identification for himself in a, in a, in a false claim about having lost a child at Sandy Hook. And, and I'm hoping, I'm wondering whether any of these bands were related to the trial yes. and, and the information that's about to come out that, in fact, well, we have this massive evidence that Alex Jones hasn't libeled or besmirched anyone because these were all fake, phony crisis actors who made pots full of money by pretending to have children who died at Sandy Hook. I mean... 
and here I am, Michael. They're not coming after me because I would lay waste. I mean, I'm not going to fool around. Yeah, they haven't gone after you. It, it, right. So they avoid me. They go after the low-hanging fruit. And it turns out Alex Jones is a big, lucrative target. I mean, oh, he's uh, out uh, on the uh, forefront. Unlike, unlike, uh, unlike, see, there are two major differences. Well, well, not only am I more formidable in terms of evidence and presenting arguments and depth and quality of research, but I don't have money. Uh, so Alex is a much easier target, and he has money. He's got so, a lot of money. Obviously, if you're out to make more money and promote your own fake role here as a Sandy Hook parent, go after Alex. You don't go after Jim Fetzer. I mean, you know. I, in five minutes, I can dispatch, you know, th- these cases by explaining how we know the school was closed, explaining how to fake the kids. I have a GIF, Larry, Larry who did this brilliant GIF where you, you see the face, the man, man in the doorway turn into Lee Oswald, and then you see uh, uh, the face, you know, attempt to turn into Billy Lovelady, but it doesn't work, created a GIF where you can see uh, Noah Posner turn into Michael Vabner. And get this, Michael Vabner, who's now just graduated from the University of Connecticut at Storrs, had his own website. And when we show Noah turning into Michael Vabner, you can now compare that with Michael Vabner's photograph of himself on his own website where he says, Hi, I'm Michael Vabner. Oh, my and goodness. You see, and you can see this is the guy. <laughs> this is the guy. Um, so, by the way, um, are you familiar with Alex Jones's lawyer? I thought it was an interesting uh, choice, well, Mark Randazza. Well, he's got a new lawyer now. I don't know the guy. You mean out of uh, out of Las Vegas? Yeah, Mark. I, well, I'm not quite sure where he's, he's out a, of. He's a first uh, First Amendment attorney. Out of uh, he's got a. Uh, there are two different lawyers. Maybe maybe he's got them both. I wrote to the attorney in Las Vegas and gave him a series of photographs. Uh, of, you know, why we were inspired to consider it, it was uh, uh, Kelly Watt, who's right. a very smart gal. Notice a similarity between the young Noah and Michael Vabner. And she asked friends, does it look as though they could be related? And her friends all said, oh, yeah, that's the same guy grown up. So we went to work. Six of us went to work uh, collaboratively on a blog, and we found they had the same eyes. They have the same eyebrows. They have the same ears. They have the same shape of skull, uh, you know, I mean, it was just ridiculous. So we we went about doing this and, and created a GIF, as I've already described. Yes. Larry did it. You know, he created the GIF. Yeah, I've seen that. And, I was going to ask you, where did you find and, that? <laughs> and now we have, you know, Michael Vabner creating his own website with a photograph that confirms where he's saying, I am Michael Vabner. Oh, I like and that. And you can see this is the guy who was supposed to be Noah Posner. So see Noah, see how ingenious this is. Noah Posner is a fiction. There was no Noah Posner, just as there's no Lenny Posner. What there is is Michael Vabner and photographs of him when he was a kid. What there is is Reuben Vabner, his father, and photographs of Reuben with Michael, you know, from years past that they're palming off, supposed to be Lenny Posner with Noah Posner. It's so insulting. It's so grotesque, Michael, when you learn, you put the pieces together and see the truth. Because there's not only was this an outrageous effort to instill fear, it was an act of of fake terrorism designed to instill fear into the heart of every parent across the United States. The idea that these 20 children would be slaughtered in a 
Elementary School in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, in order to promote the political agenda of the Obama administration with regard to gun control. In fact, get this, Paul Preston, who is also a contributor to the book, uh, himself is a school administrator who's supervised drills uh, of the kind that was actually going on at Sandy Hook, and he was so disturbed by what he saw broadcast that he reached out to his contacts in the Obama administration, all of whom confirmed to him that it had been a drill, that no children had died, and it was done to promote gun control. I mean, this was within a week of the event. He had confirmation from the Obama Department of Education that it had been a drill, that no one had died, it was done to promote gun control. Yes, yes, yet another state-sponsored terrorism operation, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. So, so now, in fact, well, here's the deal. I started to explain. <clears throat> you got this attorney, this First Amendment attorney out there in Las Vegas. So I sent him one of my recent blogs, and it was about how, you know, uh, fake Sandy, I think the title was, fake Sandy Hook parents seek Facebook protection. It's just ridiculous. From, my, from identification and prosecution for their criminal acts. And, and I lay out yeah, the photographs. That's ridiculous. I, I know. I lay out the evidence where you see the original photograph that inspired Kelly with a hypothesis. The four stages of Noah turning into Michael. The gif, the gif where you can actually see Michael turn into uh, Noah. Noah turn into Michael. Uh, and then the photograph from the blog, from Michael Badner's own blog, where you can see him identifying himself, and you can see it's the same person. And then get this, I threw in a, a photograph, a group photograph that Wolfgang Helbig has come up with. Him. It, well, he's got three of them at least. He, he's got one of eight of the Sandy Hook girls all alive and well and perky, juxtaposed against the photographs of them when they were supposed to have been killed. Uh, he's got another one of even more of the girls, and he's got one of four of the Sandy Hook boys, the fourth of whom is none other than Michael Vavner. Oh, by the way, Jim, you are right. He is out of Las Vegas. Yeah, well, here's the thing. So I sent this to him. I mean, in other words, I laid it out for him to see, you know, so he'd have the evidence. But I've also sent the same evidence to Jerry Corsi, to someone whose name on the in, in email address is Nico Alex Jones, who I believe may actually, in fact, be Alex Jones. And, of course, mm-hmm. the book. I mean, they know all about this. And the, and the problem I had there for Michael was this. It looked to me as though, Alex Jones wasn't putting up a fight when he had all this evidence that could lay waste these complete phony frauds. He could expose that uh, Lenny Posner is perpetrating a fraud on the court because his real name isn't even Lenny Posner, and he certainly has no standing to sue because he didn't lose a child at Sandy Hook. Noah was a work of fiction. Similarly for the other Sandy Hook parents, He's got all this evidence, but he's not using it. So why is he not using it? I have a friend who's got a lot of very good questions telling me he thinks that Alex Jones was worn out, wanted to have a nice retirement package and get out, and that it looked to him, as it looked to me, that Alex was going to take a fall. They were going to use it to to claim, since this Sandy Hook critic has been found, you know, guilty of defamation, uh, that means Sandy Hook was real, and they'd use it to tarnish all serious conspiracy research, uh, where I, Dan, Mona, Wolfgang, James Tracy, Dr. Eelwin, 
Vivian Lee, a host of others. I mean, you know, there, there, there are 50, 60, 100 have done serious research on Sandy Hook, including Barry Satoro, who did brilliant little videos exposing how one of the parents, David Wheeler, actually played two roles at Sandy Hook of a grieving father, but also a SWAT team member, because absurdly we have him walking up and down Dickinson Drive carrying an AR-15 upside down by the magazine. I mean, this is as absurd as it gets. I used to supervise uh, recruit training at San Diego as a Marine Corps officer, in this case a series commander. I had 15 DIs and 300 recruits under my command, including marksmanship training. I can assure you the lowest-ranking private in the Marine Corps would know better than to carry a, a, a weapon upside down by the magazine. The magazine's designed to be rapidly replaced. It could easily fall out. The weapon fall to the ground could be damaged. It's incredibly stupid. It shows no competence whatsoever, which is what you'd expect of this David Wheeler, since he's he's an actor. He's a two-bit actor, as is his wife, uh, who, who uh, Francine, who... Uh, uh, Obama actually flew down to Washington and get, allowed to give a, a talk from the Oval Office about gun control, uh, a, a benefit he'd previously only extended to one other person, Joe Biden, Vice President of the United States. And, and Obama was deeply involved in this. Eric uh, Holder was deeply involved in this. Oh, yes. Joe Biden was deeply involved in this. Here, here's an interesting little aside on the show Greater Boston. Uh, about a week before the Sandy Hook event, they were, the, the, the host, who is Andy Rooney's daughter, was interviewing the mayor of Boston, who was boasting how he's good buddies with Joe Biden, and how Joe Biden had assured him that gun control would be a done deal by January of 2013, and the host is just dumbfounded. What could possibly happen to cause legislation to pass so fast? And the mayor was reticent, wouldn't elaborate, but he'd already laid it out. He got this from Joe Biden. Obviously, it was Sandy Hook. And in fact, uh, you know, on the 16th of January, Barack Obama signed no less than 23 executive orders to constrain our access to weapons under the Second Amendment and also introduced new uh, mental health programs at a level where they have never heretofore been imagined appropriate i mean for young kids in school mental health programs give me a break right all all this is just so obscene i'm telling you obscene yes and speaking of um oh sorry go ahead jim i didn't mean to cut you i was just going to add one more point so with regard to the judge in texas see there are two different suits there's one in connecticut and there's one in texas so with regard to the judge in Texas, I reached out to the uh, clerk of the court and got in touch with the clerk for the judge who's handling the case. And uh, she gave me an email address, and I sent her the same information to explain that, uh, you know, a, a fraud is being perpetrated on the court. Now, I mentioned this new series about Sandy Hook that is uh, the sequel to the series we did about 9-11, which had 27 yes. contributors. This is Absolutely sensational. Uh, John Remington, uh, uh, Robert David Steele, who's a former Marine Corps intelligence officer, former CIA officer who has become a whistleblower, and I've interviewed him. You asked about the interview. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's probably on 153news.net. He and I were also jointly interviewed by Kerry Cassidy on Project Camelot. That interview is probably on BitChute. 
because Carrie, too, has been taken out by YouTube, even though she had a huge operation and was a special status uh, as sort of a founding member of YouTube. Uh, there's some group there that have a special status. That didn't help when, you know, too much truth was coming out of her shows, so they had to ban them. I mean, what this is is a war on truth. It Don't really let is. anyone misunderstand it. Freedom of it's thought a- is gone, Jim. Uh, yeah, this 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 makes the United States a shadow of its former self. It really does. Yeah. And and Jim, speaking of which, let's tie all this together here. And speaking of false flag operations, we are definitely coming up on the, I believe, the 17th anniversary of 9/11. Uh, the day America changed, in my opinion, as I look around myself today, memories of that time I felt this country uh, was united after that tragic event. And I definitely recall a sense of uh, unity, even as a kid. And uh, now today, that feeling is long gone. We are divided yeah. uh, today. But, and it's, but, it's quite a shame, Jim. Well, but, Michael, the sense of unity was over a fabricated event. It's I mean, true, you know, but I, I'm just... Uh, I'm just throwing that out there. Nine, that, nine, mm-hmm. Nineteen Islamic terrorists did not attack the United States on 9-11. In fact, Osama bin Laden had nothing to do with it. Uh, one of the uh, memoranda, and these are mostly one-page memoranda. Some are two. I think one is four. Uh, have to do with all aspects of 9-11. Uh, but uh, Osama bin Laden was our man in Afghanistan. He was instrumental in getting Stinger missiles in the hands of the Mujahideen, which they used to shoot down. Uh, Soviet uh, helicopters and planes and drove the Soviet Union out of Yeah, he was a CIA-trained asset of ours. That's right. He was actually a CIA official. Right. He was Colonel Tim Osmond of the CIA, and he was uh, visited in a hospital in Dubai shortly before his death on 15 December 2001. Very deep ties with the Bush family as well. From his medical map, well, the family does, the Bin Laden family, not Osama per se, who is a bit of an outcast in the family. But, yeah, the, the Bin Laden family, it goes ties with the Bushes. When they had a stand down to all commercial flights in the United States, Michael, they had one exception. They had a plane. Yeah, NORAD, they stood down. The Holy Bin Laden hell. family back to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that too. And it's just, it's insane once we really look back at the whole spectrum of it. And that's why I was bringing up that I recall, you know, the sense of unity, even though it was a false flag operation even like as as a kid i just felt m- more safe i guess you could say and i i it's i guess it was just an illusion well the emotions were real it was based on false beliefs uh, goebbels who was hitler's propaganda minister said that it's very easy to lead the people into a war just uh convince them they're being attacked by an outside enemy and they will gladly give up their their freedom for security, and, and that's been played out time and time and time again. So it was a big lie of a classic formula to get the country together to oppose what? Arabs. I mean, look, between the destruction of the South Tower and the North, they even played footage, video footage, showing Palestinians rejoicing, creating the impression this was contemporaneous so that the Palestinians were rejoicing overseeing the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York. They even had a a phone call, they faked a phone call, claiming responsibility by the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. I can't begin to tell you how absurd this is. The Palestinians were just as stunned and slack-jawed as the rest of the world. This was archival footage from a previous 
religious or political event. It had nothing to do with 9-11. They just happened to have it at hand. They just happened to play it to what may have been the largest audience television has ever had in history. This is where the Israelis overdo it, Michael. They go a bridge too far. You know, they just have to get that extra uh, uh, dam against their foremost enemies. I mean, it's not for nothing Bobby was allegedly shot by a Palestinian, Sirhan Sirhan, who actually was had been hypnotized. He was in front of Bobby. He was just a patsy. He fired eight shots from his twenty two. Uh, 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 weapon, but they were all in front of and none of them hit Bobby. Bobby was shot at four times with three hits, uh, by, uh, similar, the same caliber, in fact, same make as I recall, 22 from the side. In fact, the, the, the he was shot by the security guard, uh, uh, uh Eugene, uh, Thane Eugene Caesar, who was holding Bobby by his right arm with his left. He shot Bobby behind the right ear from a distance of an inch and a half. And then as Bobby was falling, he shot further, and two shots entered beneath Bobby's armpit. As he was falling, he grabbed the tie, and the tie clasp for the assassin is actually on the floor in the pantry. and You can see it in some photographs. But that's how Bobby was killed. In fact, the, the medical examiner from Los Angeles, uh, Thomas Noguchi, was world famous, did an autopsy on Bobby and explained he'd been shot at four times but hit three from the, the side, because one actually went through his coat but didn't hit his body. So that was a fourth shot. But the other three, you know, one uh, one actually lodged in his spinal column. Uh, I mean, he had a, a very competent, world-class autopsy on Bobby Kennedy, but because it was discrepant with a LAPD report and because the LAPD was run with an iron hand and had tremendous influence. They fired Noguchi and retained the police report as the official account, which is just as absurd as it gets. I mean, this is just the blatant politics of the Bobby assassination. In fact, I, I have multiple witnesses identified three different CIA officials in the ambassador at the time of the assassination. One was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Joe Anizis, let's see, what is his first name? Uh, uh, Gordon Campbell, uh, George Joe Anitas, who is a, a PSYOPs guy and whose file has never been released, even under the JFK Re- Records Act. And, uh, uh, Sanchez, uh, Morales, uh, David Sanchez Morales, who was a, a brutal guy. He was involved in killing, uh, you know, uh, uh, Che Guevara in, in Bolivia when they tracked him down and he was killed. Uh, uh, David Sanchez Morales cut off his head and kicked it about a hundred yards away so there wouldn't be any talk of him having survived. I mean, this is a brutal guy. At one point when he was drinking, he talked about how we, we got the bastard in, 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 in Dallas and, uh, uh, we got the SOB in LA too. You know, he was talking too much. So he wound up being silenced himself, as happens fairly often in the trade. Right. That is something that we commonly see. Time and time again, someone gets too close and they get wiped away. Just look at Michael Ratner. Yeah, remind me about Ratner. I'm not sure I recollect the story there off the top of my head. Yeah, that's an attorney, and I believe he just died back in 2016. He, what was it? What was his role, Michael? What, what, why was he targeted? Well, I believe you know, he, you know, 
We have an awful was, lot of people uh, who are taken out to this day who are about to testify against Hillary Clinton. You know, I mean, it's it's stunning. By the way, I wanted to go one step further about these lawsuits because I reached out to the judge in Texas, but there's also a lawsuit in Connecticut. And, in fact, I have co- collaborated with a retired professor of law about Sandy Hook. He actually submitted an amicus curiae brief to the – to the circuit court reviewing the conviction of Zoker Saranov. Yeah, the- by, by the way, Jim, quickly here, Michael Ratner, he was the attorney for uh, Julian Assange. Oh, uh, well, this guy was world famous. Yeah, he wound up in front of a subway in London. I mean, that was clearly to punish him for representing Assange. Crazy, right? Uh, well, s- s- Listen, it's absurd that we still have these networks talking nonstop about Russian hacking and intervention because there was no Russian hacking or intervention. Uh, we know what actually happened. Uh, Seth Rich, who was the IT guy for the DNC, was a Bernie Sanders supporter. He was disillusioned by the sabotaging of Bernie's campaign where Debbie Wasserman Schultz transferred 13 primaries Bernie had won to Hillary's column to guarantee that she would be the nominee. He was given advice by Kim.com, who's explained his role, openly acknowledged his role in assisting Seth Rich in doing the download, where Bill Benny and Ray McGovern, who are two of our leading uh, uh, crypto security experts, have confirmed that there was no Russian hacking. They know because the files were downloaded uh, directly from the server at a rate that would have been impossible for a distant hack, and in the eastern time zone. Uh, 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 now, uh, Seth got them to Julian Assange by way of Craig Murray, who is a U.K. ambassador to Uzbekistan, the head of a college and an intel analyst himself, where both Julian Assange and Craig Murray have said they know the leaker. It wasn't hacking, it was a leak. They know the identity of the leaker, and he was not Russian. And, of course, it was Seth Rich who would be shot on the street and then die at Washington University Medical Center uh, after having undergone preliminary treatment for two, three wounds, one in and out and one in, but which were not regarded as life-threatening, and then they were infiltrated, surrounded by a group of law enforcement officials, and the medical assistance was cut off to Seth Rich, and he was, let us say, allowed to die. I mean, that's to put it very kindly. This is all disgusting beyond belief. The, the, The Russian hacking meme, as we learned from the book Shattered, uh, which was published in 2017, was made up by Robbie Mook and John Podesta within 48 hours of Hillary's concession speech in order to divert attention from the incompetent campaign they had run from the contents of the WikiLeaks revelations that led directly to Pizzagate, where John Podesta himself appears to be the pedophile-in-chief, and from Hillary's own entanglements with Russia, whereas... Many Americans are now aware Hillary sold off 20% of U.S. uranium reserves to Russia through a Canadian company called yeah. Uranium One. Uranium One, right. For a $145 million donation to the Clinton Foundation, which required the approval of President Barack Obama. So I say, well, if Julius and Ethel Rosenberg received the electric chair for sharing U.S. atomic secrets with the then-Soviet Union. What do Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama deserve for selling 20% of U.S. uranium reserves to Russia? 
And now we have a new book, by the way. I don't know if you're aware. There's a book called The Russia Hoax by Greg Jarrett. Completely brilliant. Takes the whole thing apart. Demonstrates conclusively. I say conclusively. This whole thing was rigged against Trump. Everything he said about it, uh, that they were out to get him. There was a conspiracy spying on him. Everything Trump ever said about it is 100% accurate. Uh, it was rigged. They, they phonied up a dossier. There, there have been like 11 meetings between the FBI and this Christopher Steele. Oh, 13 meetings and 11 times they gave him payments for putting together this phony dossier, but it was also being paid for by the DNC and Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's just the most disgraceful episode in American history vis-a-vis the judiciary. The corruption is so overwhelming. For Robert, Robert Mueller, by the way, is very much in the middle of all of this. If you stop and think about Mueller, why is he being praised? Mueller was appointed the head of the FBI before 9-11. He left the FBI after the Boston bombing, and he was at the FBI when Sandy Hook took place. And I tell you, all of those happened completely differently than we've been told as many are appreciating it. I mean, in Boston, we had the police on bullhorns calling out, this is a drill, this is a drill. We had the Boston Globe tweeting, tweeting that a demonstration bomb would be set off during the marathon for the benefit of bomb squad activities, and a second tweet saying one would be set off in a minute in front of the library, and lo and behold, a minute later in front of the Boston Public Library, one of these demonstration bombs, kind of a puff piece. I was an artillery officer in the Marine Corps. They, they were not powerful enough to kill anybody unless perhaps you were actually sitting on top of it. Went off. Now, when we look through the smoke, you know, there were bodies lying there with missing arms and legs, but there was no blood. I'm sure we've discussed this before, Michael, but it deserves emphasis. You cannot have arms and legs blown off by explosives and there to be no blood. Lorraine Day, MD, was the head of trauma surgery at San Francisco General Hospital, has made this point most eloquently. The blood only showed up later. It was fake blood. I initially thought it came out of tubes. We now know it came out of little orange duffel bags that were fake blood kits, and there were five or six scattered around with it when the area finally cleared. No, this nobody... is a drill. This is a drill. <laughs> Dan, are you are, are you with us now, Dan? Yeah. This is a drill. I always love when you do that, Jim. This is a drill. This is a drill. Uh, I, first of all, gentlemen, first of all, I uh, sincerely apologize for the technical difficulties. Um, seemingly, I lost control of my computer and um, you know couldn't control the functions and had to completely shut it down and restart. So I apologize yeah, for that. Dan, 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 I'm certain that wasn't your fault. Do you have any idea they come right in? I'm doing a blog, and the text is jumping around in front of me. I can't get my cursor in the right place. They're actually inside my blog as I'm attempting to put together a blog. Something that might have taken me 30 minutes winds up taking me three hours or even more. It's wow. ridiculous. And then they're coming in and taking down photographs like the GIF where you see uh, where you right. see. Uh, Noah Posner turned into uh, Michael Fabner. And the gravestones, the gravestone photos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mona Alexis Presley. That's uh, part of the vanishing, your vanishing blog series. I know, I know. Discovered that they had uh, created the impression of having put up a memorial to Noah Posner. But what they did was they took a blank uh, gravestone and, and just imposed images. It was a Photoshop. And they didn't have it properly spaced. I mean, it was easy to show. Dan and Mona have put together other grave sites, uh, you know, for, 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 
Well, Mona's last name is Presley, so she's got a gravesite for Presley. She made one up for Fetzer. I mean, it's just <laughs> ridiculous. It's all phony. It's all phony. Yes, it's all complete it's and total, total bullshit, all of it, 100%. Yeah, you know, Jim, it's funny that you brought up the whole uh, FBI investigation. I was going to ask you a little bit about that, and since I've been talking a lot about the whole FBI COINTELPRO that began back in 56 and allegedly ended it ended in 71, but I get the feeling that that sort of operation has not ended. Well, uh, you know, the FBI is involved in an awful lot of uh, dirty business. In fact, we have some experts saying every one of these events that we've had uh, since 9-11, the FBI has been responsible for them. It turns out that 1993 attempted bombing of the Twin Towers, allegedly to free the blind cheek, appears to have been a uh, an experiment to see how much explosive would be required to, to destroy the Twin Towers. And those had sensors in the buildings, and the explosive was set off at a location that would give them maximal information about how to do the job. It, it, this is one of the fascinating parts of the uh, 9-11 memorandum series for the President of the United States, which anyone, let me just emphasize, anyone can download for free. Uh, Michael, you may have put up a link to it. You can go to uh, Robert David Steele, just put in his name, you'll get to his big website, and he's got websites within his website. Click on the websites, and you get a Pi Beta Iota, and you'll find the POTUS series. You can click on the POTUS series. You can download this 110-page report directly to your desktop. Now, let me just emphasize what we have here. This is absolutely sensational, in my opinion. There have been three most important developments in the history of 9-11 research. In 2004, David Ray Griffin published his book, The New Pearl Harbor, that laid out in an easily accessible fashion a whole host of anomalies, irregularities, oddities, inconsistencies that, that created puzzlement about 9-11, that, that being, mind you, the first stage in scientific reasoning. Uh, then in 2005, actually it was December, you might as well think of it as January of 2006, I founded Scholars for 9-11 Truth. And this was so important because it brought students, experts, scholars of many different disciplines who were interested in Sandy Hook together in a single organization. It was absolutely sensational. But now we have this 100-page uh, POTUS report, and I, I say to you, Michael, this this series of essays is ten times more important than anything that's gone before. Ten times more important. It's so accessible, it's so easy, most of them are one page, they each focus on a different aspect of 9-11. My favorites are those pertaining to the aircraft. We have, for example, yeah. uh, 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 an aeronautical engineer explained how the official account of the 757 at the Pentagon is preposterous because it's not even aerodynamically possible. According to that story, uh, the plane was barely skimming the ground at over 400 miles an hour, taking out a series of lampposts, <laughs> where, yeah, right. where he explains that because of the phenomenon known as downdraft, also sometimes ground effect, that plane at that speed could not have got closer than 100 feet of the ground, which is higher than the Pentagon is tall. I, I have usually referred to it as 60 feet, which is one wingspan of the 124-foot wingspan of the 757, 60 or 80 feet, where 80 is higher than the Pentagon at 71 feet is tall. But the point is, it's preposterous, it's impossible, didn't happen, 
There's no debris on the lawn. You know, we even had Jamie McIntyre there at the time explaining to the anchor who was asking about a plane having hit the building. He said, well, you might think that, but for my close-up inspection, there's no sign of any plane having hit anywhere near the Pentagon. This is Jamie McIntyre on the scene at the Pentagon on 9-11. Then we have two brilliant memoranda from John Lear. The first is where John Lear is our nation's most distinguished pilot. He holds 17 international speed records, for example. He'll be on tomorrow, by the way. Oh, wonderful. Well, I am a huge fan of John. I want you to extend my most cordial regard. Oh, of course. course. Absolutely wonderful memoranda. One is how uh, in New York, uh, uh, it was an impossible speed. We see their pilots for 9-11 Truth had also established that a 767 at that altitude, 700 to 1,000 feet, going the speed attributed to it, which was actually its cruising speed at 35,000 feet, where the air is only one-third as dense, would have physically come apart in the air. In other words, we're seeing an impossible uh, event transpiring on the video, which knows it has to be, tells us it has to be fabricated one way or another. John goes into, in some detail, the structure of the Twin Towers and how it would have been impossible for a real plane to have entered either of those buildings, uh, where they would be colliding with, uh, you know, uh, uh, the external steel support columns, which were very formidable, which were connected by steel trusses to the 47 core columns, which each of which was filled with four to eight inches of concrete, where because there were V-shaped grooves in the trusses that were four inches deep, in some places the concrete was four and other eight inches, but because the buildings were 208 feet on a side, each Truss represented an acre of concrete on a steel plate. And if you look at, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the videos of the, of the South Tower, Flight 175 is intersecting with eight of these floors, Michael. That would have created enormous horizontal resistance. And of course, it's a law of material science that in collisions, the more dense material prevails over the last dance while steel is overwhelmingly more dense than aluminum. You should have had the plane crumbling external to the building, body seats, luggage, wings, tail falling to the ground, none of which happened. Would have been impossible for the building to enter, the plane to enter the building, and yet we have the video showing the plane passing its whole length into this massive 500,000 ton steel and concrete building in the same number of frames as it passes through its own length in air, which is completely preposterous unless steel and concrete provide no more resistance to the trajectory of an aircraft than air, a plane in flight than air. The second memorandum, John is talking about a conversation he had with a Hollywood film producer who was in agreement with him that it was impossible for a real plane to have entered the building, and they got into a extended conversation about the use of holograms, where most people have believed that you, in order to project the hologram, you have to have a solid surface. But where it turns out about six or eight months ago, there was a report of a revolutionary new development of a holographic technology that simply uses the molecules of air as a temporary screen to project the image. Uh, Dan, we're getting some feedback from you there. Oh, I'm sorry for that. Yeah, no, no worries, no worries. And this you got re- it. You okay now? Okay, perfect, perfect. And, you know, Jim, this reminds me how erroneous the 9-11 Commission report truly was, and I often refer to it as the Warren Commission because yeah. they're, they're both Bravo Sierra. 
Right. That's right. Absolutely correct, Michael. They both were whitewashes. They both bear faint resemblance to any reality. In fact, uh, you know, they're in all of their major contentions, they are provably, provably false. Another important memorandum, by the way, related to the planes is by A.K. Dudney, who is a professor of computer science at Western Ontario, who after 9-11 undertook experiments to see whether phone calls with cell phones were possible. Yeah, that's another thing I was just about to bring up with, uh, bring up here, the, the reports of cell phones. His memorandum reviews the evidence that all those alleged cell phones were impossible. They could not have been made from planes flying over 200 miles an hour at altitudes over 2,000 feet. Then the improbability just vanishes. Especially not in that year. Right. Well, and it's interesting, too. We even had the story from uh, Theodore Olson, who was the wife of Barbara Olson, who's supposed to have died on Flight 77. That's right, which, yes. Which wasn't actually, well, actually wasn't even in the air. Uh, we had uh, Gerard Holmgren, who was a blues musician from Australia, had noticed that the Bureau of Transportation Statistics didn't list either Flight 11, North Tower, or 77, Pentagon, on their schedule, where the, the, the Bureau keeps records or statistics for every takeoff and landing, the duration of the flight and all that, in, in the United States. And they weren't even scheduled. In other words, they weren't even in the air. They weren't in the air. It, it, and, and and get this, it's very peculiar because there was a – I had proposed, to a memorandum from Rob Masalmo, who is a co-founder of Pilots for 9-11 Truth, who has done wonderful work. I mentioned already how they'd established that the flight uh, 175 seen in the videos was uh, – at the speed displayed was impossible. Physically impossible, right. Yeah. They, yeah. they created a documentary, Michael, called 9-11 Intercepted, and they actually show diagrammatically the plane coming apart at that speed, at that altitude. But pilots did other much more important work. Uh, through a study of air ground communication, they were able to establish, for example, that Flight 93 was over Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, after it had purportedly crashed in Shanksville. And, again... They did air ground study of Flight 175 and found it was over Harrisburg and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, after it allegedly hit the South Tower. And I obtained Federal Aviation Administration registration records that told showed that the planes used for those two flights, and remember the same plane could fly today from Tampa to Chicago, tomorrow from New York to L.A. and so forth. Correct. The, plane, the planes used for those yeah. two flights were not formally taken out of service or deregistered until 28 September 2005. Uh, by the way, Jim, there's another name that now escapes me, but I recall now. Um, Barbara Hunniger, have you ever been in contact with her? Yeah, sure, of course. Let me get to Barbara. Yeah, well, look, go ahead. I want, uh, uh, which raised the questions, how can planes that were not even in the air have crashed on 9-11? And how can planes that crashed on 9-11 have still been in the air four years later? Right. Uh, and and yeah. what this all means, we even have uh, half a dozen or more of the alleged uh, Islamic ter- terrorists turning up alive and well the following day and making contact with the British press. And yet the FBI has never revised its list of 19. But yeah. when, when, when Alex Jones did the American Scholars Conference in Los Angeles in June of 2006, he invited me to be the keynote speecher, speaker. But we also had a a panel discussion on Sunday that was filmed by C-SPAN, and, and it ran an hour and 45, and they later put it on uh, seven or eight very good time slots. 
the four speakers were all from scholars. Stephen Jones, who is a professor of physics from BYU, whom I had invited to be my co-chair. Uh, Bob Bellman, who'd been a World War, uh, Korean War ace. He'd shot down 101 enemy planes in the Korean War, but more importantly, had a, a PhD in nuclear engineering from Caltech and had been the scientific director of the Star Wars project under Presidents Reagan and Ford. Uh, Webster Tarpley, who has a book, uh, 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, and I, I as the founder of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, and I gave my top ten reasons. Uh, we know the 9-11 hijackers were fake. And, you know, you can find that online. Just go find the C-SPAN where, where I gave that presentation. Uh, and so, I mean, that was my uh, direct encounter with Alex. Years, years later... I would speak in um, New York City at, at Cooper Union at a 9-11 conference. And right. afterwards, it mm-hmm. turned out that Alex was having an event in a nearby theater. So my wife and I and a friend went over to take it in. And they, I, Michael, I was just astonished. They gave me the red carpet treatment. They brought me right in. They but, but sat my wife and our friend in the audience, but put me up on a platform with the first responders. And when I sat down, the fellow... Next to me, leaned over, he said, it was watching you on Bill O'Reilly that convinced me 9-11 was an inside job. Ah, excellent, yes. Your appearance on Bill O'Reilly's show, I've always really enjoyed. Last night, University of Wisconsin instructor Kevin Barrett has called President Bush a murderer, saying he orchestrated 9-11 without providing a shred of evidence for that charge. Despite that defamation, Barrett teaching a course on Islam this semester at the University of Wisconsin. The only sanction against him is in order to stop making public statements. Joining us now from Madison is James Fetzer, a recently retired professor from the University of Minnesota Duluth who supports Barrett. Now, I'm getting a little tired of Barrett and Ward Churchill and other college professors who hate their country. Oh, he's and tired. bring this hatred um, in, onto a campus full of impressionable students. Am I wrong to be offended and angry about that, sir? Well, you are, you are wrong, Bill, because you haven't studied the case. We've created an organization consisting of experts and scholars, pilots, aeronautical engineers, mechanical engineers, structural engineers, civil engineers, physicists. We've been examining what the government's been telling us, and frankly, Bill, it's a fantasy. None of the major claims made by the government can be sustained. We've been looking at this from every point of view. The government has a story it wants to sell us. We're not buying it. Okay, you don't have to buy anything. You're American. You want to be a nut, you can be a nut. And you are a nut. Because in order for any conspiracy of this magnitude to take place, thousands of Americans would have to buy into it, would have to know about it, and would have to keep their mouth shut about it. That's never going to happen. You're like the guys who think that the space aliens kidnapped Elvis or something like that. That's the, that's where you are, in my opinion. So your opinion what is that Bush murdered everybody on 9-11, seize control, it, make uh, him the dictator of America, whatever the crazy thing it is. In my opinion is, you are nuts. We're both entitled to our opinion, okay? You're entitled and I'm entitled. And we'll let the folks tell you. Hold it, hold it. But now you have a guy, Barrett, who's in a classroom. And we, we had the students on last night. Believe me, the students don't know very much. And here's Barrett. And here's Ward Churchill. And they're bringing their crazy theories in explaining this, that, and the other thing, and whatever conclusions you guys have reached. Um, and the students are there absorbing this. And I'm saying this is grossly irresponsible because it's based on nothing. If you had the evidence, sir, you would be on the front page of the New York Times in a heartbeat. There's nothing that the hate Bush media would like more than to get a hold of anything you have. 
and you don't have anything. You can't get in the San Francisco Chronicle or the National Enquirer or anywhere because you don't have anything other than a harebrained theory. Who wants to be on this platform? We have hundreds of studies. We have documents. We have records. Why can't you get on the front page? Anyone, Bill, anyone, Bill, who has even looked at the collapse of Building 7 understands it came down by controlled demolition. It wasn't hit by... I had guys in here who say, I had guys in here who say, you're full of... You know what? Why can't you get this on the front page of the Boston Globe or the Atlanta Journal <laughs> Constitution or the Minneapolis Star Tribune? Papers that despise the Bush administration. Why can't you get it on the front page of those papers? The, the press and the media are too much dominated by the federal government and federal regulations. Oh, I, I, you know that. Uh, oh, Any, anyone the New York Times is dominated and afraid of the federal government when every single day they rip Bush's throat out. Come on. That doesn't make any sense. Time. In 1977, Carl Bernstein published an article in the Rolling Stone in which he explained that he'd been told by officials of the CIA that their greatest successes have been with with CBS, with Time Life, and with the New York Times bill. The situation today is much worse. Anyone who wants to know the truth should go to st911.org, our website, Scholars for 9-11 Truth, and they'll find it in Spain's bill. I, I hope they go to your go website, and I hope they read your stuff. So I just want to – this is how crazy you guys are, and you guys are, really. Number one, you hate your country, and number two, you're going to loom. Here's how you – here's your scenario. Bush, the Bush administration are murderers. The president's a murderer, okay? He killed 3,000 Americans yeah, that's about right. he wanted to increase his power and suspend all civil liberties. And in order to do that, he co-opted a whole bunch of intelligence people yep. and military people. They all got in a little conspiracy. They killed 3,000 Americans. And the press is covering it up because Pretty they're much. afraid of the federal government. Come on. I mean, this, why don't you just say that you have a Martian living in your bedroom, sir? Why don't you just say that and parade a puppet yeah, out we, or something? We found that a government account is provably false on every major respect. Yeah. You appear to be among those who can't handle the truth, Bill. <laughs> no, I know. you got to look at our findings. We've conducted objective scientists. We have no money. We're doing this because we believe in our country. And as a former Marine Corps officer, Bill, I resent your implication. We're interested in the truth and not being deceived. You, you hate my country. The American government <laughs> You hate your country. You're accusing, you're accusing a man of murder, the president of the United States of murder without yeah. any evidence. If you had the evidence, somebody somewhere would take the evidence. Why don't you bring the evidence over to France? Why don't you give it to the French media or the Canadian media or the CBC or BBC? Are they controlled by the American uh, federal government? Are they afraid? Why don't you take it there? See what they'll do with it. huh? Bill, you're obviously not going to give me a chance to talk about any of these no, things. No, I'm not, because you're not. Website, ST, All right, we heard your website. You want the truth. Fine. Scholars for 9 you can't, you can't get any legitimate news organization in the world. Fantastic, Dan. Thank, thank you, Dan, for playing that audio. And I don't care whether you're a main officer. Okay. You're Definitely. Yeah. What you're doing. You hate your country. My goodness. Now, don't forget Bill O'Reilly. Fox News did pay $32 million in harassment settlements uh, for one Bill O'Reilly. Correct. That's insane. Well, O'Reilly, you know, was just talking over me. I mean, yes, he was. I, I, I like the Hannity and Combs interviews much better because I was able to explain key findings such as when uh, – uh, Combs asked me, do we have any evidence whatsoever to suggest anyone in the government such as Dick Cheney was involved? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, we do. And I started talking about Norman Mineta's testimony where he was in an underground bunker beneath the White House. 
uh, with the vice president, who actually was the executive director of 9-11. And an aide came up to him and said, sir, it's 50 miles out. And came back and said, sir, it's 40 miles out. Then came back and said, sir, it's 30 miles out. Does the order still stand? And Cheney stood up and whipped around his head and said, of course the order still stands. Have you heard anything to the contrary? Well, Norman Mineta didn't understand what he was hearing. But it was about a plane that was approaching the Pentagon. This was on a different trajectory than the official account. It was actually coming in north of the Sitco station. There's a group called Citizens Investigation Team, two guys who found 13 witnesses who confirmed this plane approaching from the north of the Sitco, and on the official account, it would have been from the south. We already know the official account is not even aerodynamically possible. But they flew this plane toward the building and then swerved over it. In fact, uh, uh, at the same time, an explosion went off in front of the building. In fact, I have a friend from JFK Research by the name of Roy Schaefer, who had a trucker buddy by the name of Dave Ball, who was in front of the Pentagon, who told Roy he watched a plane fly toward the building and then swerve over it. And Roy was telling me he doesn't understand why Dave, uh, even though he saw this plane swerve over the building, uh, continues to believe a plane had actually hit the building. And I, I told Roy, look, I, I'd like to interview Dave. It would be very good, you know, for him to get his story on the record. Right. He went back to Dave, and Dave was reluctant to do it. And I explained to Roy, I said, look, Roy, he's much better off. Once he get his story out, he's most vulnerable when he has something to say, but he hasn't said it yet. And, in fact, uh, within two weeks, he was found dead in an abandoned building. Wow, that, <laughs> that really doesn't surprise me. And one other thing I must um, ask and if you guys have an answer, please chime in. Um, how does Dick Cheney and Don- Donald Rumsfeld and, of course, the former governor of America, Rudy Giuliani, how, how do they sleep at night? Well, to me, it's rather <laughs> interesting because uh, if you get into the memoranda, there are quite a few about the, you know, the Zionist motivation behind 9-11. You have one by Victor Thorne. You have one by Christopher Bolin. Uh, Christopher is wonderful on the politics of 9-11. He's weak on the science, but he's wonderful on the politics. You got one by Scott Bennett. There, there are a couple others who talk about the financial aspects and, and several reflect on the role of Judy, uh, Rudy Giuliani. I mean, we know from, uh, a fellow named Barry Jennings, who was from the New York Emergency Management uh, unit went to Building 7 because Rudy had a two-floor command and control center there with their own air and water supply. And when he got up there, he found half-eaten sandwiches, still steaming cups of coffee. Uh, a fireman came along and said, we got to get you out of here. While he was in the building, explosions were going off. A stairwell was blown out yeah. from under him. At one point, he felt himself stepping over dead bodies in the pitch black. He couldn't see them, but he could feel them. When he got out, he was interviewed, and it, it got out. The story got out, and I featured it uh, on a number of my uh, presentations about 9-11. Uh, and when the, 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 the Building 7 was not even mentioned in the 9-11 Commission report, they didn't even mention it. Of course, it came down, you see, seven hours later in a classic controlled demolition. And they were insisting that very modest fires had brought it down. I mean, it was about as ridiculous a story as you could ever hear from NIST. Uh, But when they finally released their report, Barry Jennings would have been in the position to contradict them based on his own direct personal experience. And, of course, unsurprisingly, Barry died a couple of days before of uh, mysterious ailments. And, Jim, let me add, too, um, of course, 
Uh, we had the Father Bush Zionist uh, petrodollar uh, angle uh, being played out with 9-11 as well. And this is the Brady bonds uh, that funded the Western takeover of the Soviet Union. Um, and those were uh, due to be paid out and hit the market on September 12th, the next day. And, you know, that was um, many yeah, billions of dollars good, worth good, of bonds. Very, very good, right, yeah. The day after, the day after. And two, it's important to note um, the strategy, how precise and strategic, uh, you know, the Pentagon uh, portion of that building that was taken out were precisely areas that covered up financial uh, records and financial tracks and, in fact, took out people, took out federal employees, wow. murdered them to cover yeah. these this theft, and you had the yeah. same thing going on at uh, you know at the towers as well. Here, 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 here's the deal about the Pentagon, Dan. Yeah. The day before 9/11, uh, Rumsfeld announced that the Pentagon was missing 2.3 trillion from its budget. Now, I can hear him giving Precisely. the instruction right. to the section chief saying, "Listen, it's very embarrassing. All this money missing. I want you to be in the West Wing with all your people, all the documents, all your records." Yes. And to figure out what happened here. And that yeah. is the wing that was hit. So that when I read the casualty list from the Pentagon, 120, I was astonished that there were three dozen financial expert, budget analysts and the like that were taken out to destroy the records of the missing 2.3 uh, billion uh, trillion, 2.3 yeah, trillion. Trillion. Yeah, trillion, trillion dollars. dollars. Yeah, it, I mean, it's but, so uh, it's so insulting. I mean, you know, uh, and it's just such a nonsense. Uh, now, you it, mentioned it, Barbara Honiger. Right. Uh, the, Barbara has done very good work on the Pentagon. Uh, I have one caveat, because she uses the word plane to refer to an unmanned aerial vehicle. Uh, uh, in my opinion, the, the best expert on the Pentagon is actually Dennis Camino. He was a top electronics troubleshooter for the Navy before he left and went to work for Raytheon. He and I did several articles about the Pentagon. He's completely brilliant in, in diagnosing uh, a photo uh, fakery, you know, and he's found one after another Pentagon uh, photograph has been photoshopped. Uh, he's extremely good at detecting it. He he sorted out that what actually happened was they used a unmanned aerial vehicle, a global hawk, to fire what, as I recall, was a Maverick missile into the building to take out the West Wing where they had all the budget experts and so forth. Also, that was the location for the Office of Naval Intelligence, which appears to have been engaged in an investigation to figure out what was going on, what was about to happen on 9-11. So, of course, they had to be derailed as well. That's at the Pentagon. Now, what uh, Dan is talking about is in with Building 7 and all documents and records, there was actually a vast gold heist from the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, you know, billions in gold was looted. And uh, all financial investigations, the records were destroyed, all the original Enron records were destroyed. A lot of investigation, the major... Uh, undertaken by the Securities and Exchange Commission was undertaken. Yeah. Robert David Steele, in his introduction, said he was most astonished to discover the financial aspects of 9-11. And what I say is, and I reiterate, in my opinion, this uh, set of memoranda with 27 experts, which is so very accessible, is by a factor of 10 more important than any other development in the history of 9-11 research 
download it, read it. It's only 100 pages plus one in its totality, and that includes several appendices, and you will understand 9-11. This is what I recommend. It's for free. It's for free. It doesn't cost you a nickel. And, and, then and it's really up. a stunning indictment. It really is. Very and then nice. pick up on, on the series we're now doing on Sandy Hook because we have, you know, I mean, believe me, by the time we're done, Sandy Hook is going to be exposed in, in virtually every dimension. I'm very, very happy with the way all this is shaping up. And, and Dan and Mona are both making contributions here as well. Yes, I well, really do Jim, like yeah, Jim, thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to, uh, you know, contribute any way I can with this. Um, you know, this is something I want to ask um, at some point here. Um, I find it strange that, you know, during this InfoWars, uh, you know, shakedown, we have Alex Jones' ex-wife, you know, on social media, um, you know, parading around really like she's an InfoWars reporter. I mean, it's just this bizarre thing where she's become this character, this ex-wife, and she's acting just like the old rogue InfoWars reporters, you know, the kind of InfoWars that people, you know, probably remember that they like. And she tweeted um, right after uh, this announcement about InfoWars that um, the Health Ranger had contacted her personally. Health Ranger contacted her, Mike Adams, and said that he wanted to meet with her um, and because he wanted to get any kind of dirt he could on Alex because he wanted to help take him out. Wow. And I just, I just find that this is such a, you know, bizarre, you know, subplot here to the story. Um, because, you know, we all know, you know, you guys have talked about this. We all know that this isn't about whether you like Alex Jones or not. You know, it's a censorship issue. Um, so I was just stunned by that. And I don't see her posting that online, you know, just, willy-nilly, so to speak. So have you guys seen that or heard anything about that? Uh, by the way, Dan, I, I did mention uh, earlier on the program something she had uh, put out there on Twitter. And That's the, right. Yeah, and That's the, right. By the way, Dan, I did want to say um, that I do enjoy your contribution here on, on the program. Oh, thank you. Yes, uh, you're always invited here, as well as Jim. Both of you are uh, more than welcome anytime to be here on the program. And I'm going, oh, thank you so much. That's great. Yes, and, and going back to the ex-wife, yes, I, I said earlier on the program that not only is he fighting with, with the Sandy Hook parents, now he has to fight with the ex-wife. So there's, well, a, there's, there's a lot of drama going on. Yeah, right. well, there's some speculation that these ex-wives, both of whom happen to be Jewish, were actually handlers of Alex vis-a-vis Israel, uh, uh, whereas I have, I observed earlier in the show, uh, uh, it has struck me long since that Alex doesn't want to go there when it has to do with Israeli involvement in 9-11. I don't know that I've ever heard of him even criticizing Israeli slaughter of Palestinians. I mean, you know, there are some obvious issues that are transcendent. The Israeli-Palestinian issue is a human rights uh, a problem of enormous magnitude, the preeminent human rights issue, I would say, of the 20th and now into the 21st century that we confront, uh, 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 very much on a par with what's going on in South Africa now, by the way. It looks as though where the blacks are now in charge and they're about to commit genocide on the whites. They force the whites to give up their guns. This is a nice object lesson in why you don't want to give up your guns. In fact, this whole gun control thing 
which has become a mantra for the Democratic Party. I mean, remember, Sandy Hook was a Democratic uh, public relations stunt to promote gun control. Parkland, another public relations stunt for gun control. The, the, the kids at Parkland were sent home at 1 o'clock because it was a holiday Valentine's Day. When you, if you have a school of 3,500 yeah. kids, you ought to have hundreds and hundreds of videos and cell phone videos and all that, and we have practically not. The one that, that I have focused upon comes from live leaks 52 seconds in a classroom there, and you see what initially appears to be a body on the ground, but it's actually a training dummy. It has no arms. It has no head. It's lying in a pool of fake blood. You see a girl who, under these traumatic circumstances, you'd think this would be the last thing she'd be worried about, but she's concerned with her bottled water. You got another girl who's on her iPod. You got, a kid, you got a kid pulling his putts. You got uh, <laughs> what appear to be police officers rushing in and out, and you think, Wow, the Parkland police were really on top of this to be there so fast. If you did not know that Parkland gave up its police force in 2004, you might not realize that these are simply actors wearing police uniforms. I mean, it's, it's embarrassingly bad when you sort it out. <laughs> they got the YMCA. But, they got the village the, people. <laughs> but, but Debbie Wasserman and Schultz was worried that in Florida they might lose as many as 11 House seats they, with the Imran Awan uh, trial coming up where uh, the – Imran and his brothers were the IT guys for Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and she allowed them to spy on all the members of Congress. I mean, this is just completely outrageous. So she wanted to distract attention. And of course, it was she who was running the DNC when they stole the nomination from Bernie Sanders, which I think is incredibly ironic because since Bernie and the Donald overlapped in their foreign policy as they were presenting it during their campaign, but Bernie's Domestic policy seemed to me to be so much more attractive to and supportive of the American people. His support for Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, unemployment insurance, <laughs> workers' compensation. I think that Bernie would have, in fact, defeated Donald. But when you put him up against a corrupt Hillary, I mean, it was no contest. This woman oh. is a true monster, by the way. The, there are going to be a very, she's a very, very nasty woman, Jim. There are going to be revelations about yeah. Hillary Clinton forthcoming that are going to turn your stomach. Yes, yes. You know, my feeling with Bernie Sanders, though, I mean, his role was to be a stooge, you know. So, I mean, he wasn't even a real candidate. Um, and the way that he, you know, dropped out was pitiful. So, uh, you know, they always put up a loser, you know, and um, it didn't quite work out that way. So, you know, of course, they had to steal everything. But, you know, he was always just a punching bag there. Um, speaking of Alex Jones' lawyer, we mentioned this earlier. I just wanted to mention this. The headline, this is from your fake news. Uh, the satanic temple is divided over its leader's decision to hire Alex Jones' lawyer, right? So, so that's a classic fake news sensationalized piece. You know, he, he, you know, clearly that's there just to program you associate satanic temple right this hollywood boogeyman thing right yeah, uh, with alex is, with yeah, alex this is, Jones, um, something right. I, I mentioned earlier about uh, alex's choice uh for uh Mark right, Randazza. right yeah. exactly. he well you know he's an interesting individual uh he's defended a number of very controversial individuals i must say uh many of which i i, I can't fully support in my opinion like uh, the Daily Stormer or whatever it's called. You know, I, I can't really fully back a website like that. 
But I mean, that's that's not none of my business. It's not, I don't, you know, I don't have Michael, an issue with Michael, that. Michael, if you believe, if you believe in freedom of speech, let a fl- thousand flowers bloom. No, of let course. everyone speak their piece. Of course. Here, that's... Here's a, here's a, here's a very interesting development. Uh, the one TV show I highly recommend everyone watches, Tucker Carlson. Now the other night, he, he's just so clear minded. He cuts through the smoke and mirrors. He won't take any nonsense. He digs he's for the Bush apologist. He's not, he's not, he's not, um, as aware of conspiracies as he ought to be, but I really like Tucker. Now, they had a woman sitting in for him, I think, Thursday night, and she was interviewing, it may have been George Galloway from the U.K., and Galloway was making the extremely interesting point that under the, I don't know if it was called the Internet Decency Act, but it, it exonerated these websites from the, from content. Uh, that since they were let everyone publish whatever they wanted, they were absolved from having any responsibility for content. That meant they couldn't be sued for, for libel or for being responsible for consequences of anything because they allowed everyone. Of course, and I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to limit anyone's, um, freedom of speech. That's not what I was getting at. Like, Michael, uh-huh. let me just finish. Oh, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, because this was a very subtle point. They were distinguishing between a publisher who decides what to publish, and because they're deciding what to publish, they are liable for lawsuits and for what they allow out. And and these internets, they were likening to a bookstore. So you, so you can come and you can pick what you want to hear, what you want to read, what you want to watch. And what he said was that the uh, the censorship has transformed their role. They are no longer a bookstore. They have turned themselves into a publisher. Because now they're deciding what you can read and not read, what you can hear and not hear. I thought it was an impeccable point. Yes, that's the problem. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was a brilliant observation. For whatever reason, this woman who was sitting in for Tucker didn't understand. I mean, it went clean over her head. This guy would, and I do believe it was George Galloway, was making a completely brilliant point. Because what it means is that the laws that have allowed them to you know, put out all this stuff because it was the commons. You know, it was the it was the informational commons that that is everyone could use. They have now changed their position. They're now taking sides politically. They're becoming the arbiters of truth. What you can say, what you can't say, and I think he's right that this has fundamentally trans- fundamentally transformed their role within society. Yes, yeah, I agree, Jim. And you know. This whole where we are now with this censorship uh, ship issue, uh, to me now, I'm just looking back, you know, six months past year or two, and we saw this coming. Like we were talking about this, you know, Jim. I know you and I were talking about this, you know, last year. Um, and it's, you know, I'm I feel like I'm, you know, I'm filled with different emotions now that we're in this moment and we're experiencing it. I mean, it's happening you know, before our eyes. And one thing I'd like to point out that seemed to set the table for this is that at the beginning of the year, uh, the ADL, along with the University of California, Berkeley, those two institutions created the online hate index. You know, so this is this AI um, program that essentially scans, you know, text on social media and then rates rates it with the so-called online hate index. You know, so this is a very subjective process, um, and clearly it's been made into a weapon. You know, this is weaponized. And, you know, for anyone that knows anything about the ADL, uh, um, 
I found this just to be such a bad stereotype. Uh, their number one word that they strongly associated with hate speech was the word Jew. Really? <laughs> Well, sure, yeah, they're, trying to, they're trying to suppress any criticism of Israel on any ground whatsoever. Right. There's a law in South Carolina that made it, uh, by definition, anti-Semitic to criticize the actions of Israel, even if it's slaughtering Palestinians who have rocks and, and sticks with machine guns and napalm. You know, I mean, it's just disgusting. Uh, they want to immunize Israel uh, from any actions, no matter how horrific, it's just outrageous. And in fact, the ADL, uh, is very much the intellectual arm of the Mossad. They recommended to Jeff Bezos, who had, you know, uh, as the owner of Amazon, had banned my Sandy Hook book in 2015. Uh, they asked him to ban any books that challenge the official narrative of the Holocaust. And he very cooperatively, very obligingly did so in some 200 books disappeared, including one of mine, uh, which we've just published in a second edition. And I suppose we didn't go to the moon either, not because of the chapters about the moon landing or even about the death and replacement of Paul McCartney or about the first death of Saddam Hussein or the second death of Osama bin Laden, but because of four chapters challenging the Holocaust by three of the world's leading experts, Thomas Dalton, who's published the book of the Holocaust debate, uh, Nick Kohlerstrom has a new book called Breaking the Spell, completely brilliant, and Robert Forasson, who may be the greatest of all revisionist historians. We're now in the new, uh, the new edition. We have an additional chapter about the moon la- landing by Dennis Camino. Uh, we have a, a new, ch- a couple new chapters about Paul, the death of Paul McCartney and his replacement by an even better musician. Uh, and we have another chapter by Robert Forrest on the Zundel Trials, ni- uh, 1985 and 1988, that is completely brilliant, where he explains, as you and I discussed before, Michael, that uh, in the first trial, the prosecution was unable to produce a single witness who could testify under oath to seeing anyone put to death in a gas chamber. And during the second trial, 1988, Fred Lochter, who is a leading expert on gas chambers in the United States, gave a report of his study of the facilities in Germany uh, where he visited to explain why none of them could have functioned as a gas chamber. The whole thing was an elaborate charade, a hoax, which is, of course, the case. When you look at the science, I mean, there's just no foundation or basis. The whole Holocaust narrative is uh, not based upon uh, evidence, science, uh, empirical data. In fact, the, the, what data we have contradicts it, such as, that the International Committee of the Red Cross was keeping extremely detailed records of everyone who died, their age, their sex, their nationality, their religion, their ethnicity, and recalibrated their data in 1993, where the total who died from all the camps, from all causes combined, was 296,081, none of whom was put to death in a gas chamber. Jim, your online hate index score is going off the charts now. You you better slow down there. Well, see, this idea, this idea about hate, what, hate, what is that? They're making this up. This is right, you know, I'm making fun of it, yeah. It means, it means 
It means it's truthful because these people hate the truth. That's to get the core of the heat index. They hate the truth. So the higher your heat <laughs> index, the greater your truth content, I guarantee you. Understood. Well, well, Jimmy, the, the, the hate index, uh, sorry, Michael, I'll just, <laughs> go ahead, this go is ahead. funny, I'll, I'll share this. The hate index, uh, so I'm measuring your score, Jim, based on the hate index. So the first, um, thing that I look at is the average number of words of hate versus non-hate in your comments. So I'm, I'm making an average of how many hate words you're saying. And you said Jew a bunch of times, so I'm going to have to uh, give you marks for that. Um, you might have said white, so I'll have to give you some marks for that too. Um, I don't think you cursed. So, yeah, so your number no, of he hate cursed. comments. Yeah. <laughs> and then secondly, Jim, I'm looking at the average number of all the caps or all of the shouting that you do in your speech. So if you're typing, I'm looking for all caps words. And if you're speaking, I'm looking for you to shout and say, you know, Jews, it's the Jews, right? So but, but, I'm, I'm but, Dan, but Dan, I don't do that. I very rarely do no, no, I'm, I'm totally, I'm joking uh, here, Jim. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm making but, a parody. You of yeah, yeah, you're doing a parody, <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a truth, the whole truth guy. And, you know, parody for me has a relatively limited role. But the fact is this whole thing is completely ridiculous. And, and, and that's my point. It's political, point. it's political correctness to the nth degree, which has been compromising our ability to exercise critical thinking and sort things out and get to the bottom of matters. So it's yeah, no doubt. And then here's the last thing they look at. And it's, it's just absurd. Uh, the average sentence length uh, in hate versus non-hate comments. So there they're saying the longer the sentence that someone types or speaks, um, then the more hateful that it is. So, you know, they're looking at shouting, they're looking at the length of the sentence, and then they're looking at these so-called trigger words, my, which are my, completely, completely arbitrary. My first book, uh, Scientific Knowledge, uh, Causation, Explanation, Corroboration, uh, 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 it was a 500-page manuscript. I typed it from the first page to the last. And I, you know, once I was done with the page, I never went back. They didn't have me change a comma. Very technical, very formal, as I thought my first book ought to be. Even Sir Karl Popper, to whom it was dedicated, wrote me a letter and told me, you know, he he liked the content, though he hadn't proven all the theorems as he ought to do were he reading it properly. But why do I intimidate my readers so? And he offered as his example of an intimidating sentence, the, the first sentence of the first paragraph of the first chapter. I thought, well, that was rather stunning that if Sir Karl Popper, one of the most formidable intellects on the planet, was finding it, it, it reading challenging. I had a, a graduate student at Kentucky who, you know, was fascinated by my stuff and read the book with great intensity. And he, he told me he found a sentence, on, I think it was in Chapter 3, it was 185 words long with colon, semicolons, and all that. Wow, you know, he thought about it, thought, he thought about it, and thought about it, thought about it, and there was just no other way I could have said what I said in that single sentence of 185 words. <laughs> That's hilarious. So what's the, hate, what's the hate index for a sentence of 185 um, words? Jim, you're the most dangerous mind, you know, in the world. It's off the scale. <laughs> There's a lot of hate in your heart. Well, Michael, it's ridiculous. I have a great passion for truth. I'm a truth guy. I want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I'm very pleased that you feature me on the show where we can pursue it. Understood. And, and, Understood. And today has just been one more very pleasurable experience, and it was an extra treat to have Dan come along for the ride. Oh, yes. And by the way, since we are 
very close to closing up shop here. I really did want to get your opinion on one more issue, and that's regarding the Space Force that Trump wants to go through with. Uh, Mike Pence speaking about well, that further recently. Something's very wrong here because there was a, a compact. I thought it was a space treaty through the United Nations against the weaponization of, spe- of uh, space and that all the nations of the world had agreed to it. And this is therefore very disturbing. I've just started to take a good look at this. Uh, we have already weaponized space. I have no doubt about it. It looks very much as though the, the fires in California, for example, are from directed energy weapons and lasers that are located on satellites in space. It's all rather horrific. And, you know, uh, the, so much of the country is in flames. It's very, very disturbing. And the United States yes. is not the only nation where this is taking place. And, and uh, I, I think that the, the Israelis are being boxed in and that, that, that they're, they're fighting back. I, I hate to say it, but there are a whole host of things that have happened that are very odd events, including these acoustic attacks down in Cuba, you know, where we had to withdraw our embassy. Who, who would want that? Some, some day. Some force that doesn't want better relations between the U.S. and, and Cuba. We have that shooting down to the Malaysian airliner in the Ukraine. That appears to be the very same plane that disappeared in the Indian Ocean. My belief is that was a Mossad hijack op. And listen, let me say candidly, this is more speculative than I normally would be, but I think this is how the pieces fit together as I see it. Uh, the Israelis hijacked the plane, probably uh, gassing all the passengers, remotely controlled, took it to Diego, Diego Garcia, where we have a secret base. Then they flew it to Israel, where uh, a plane identical to the Malaysian aircraft was seen at an airport in, in Tel Aviv. And then they flew it to Ukraine and had it shot down so they could, uh, by what was supposed to be a Russian weapon, see, so they could blame it on Russia. You may or may not be aware, but they wouldn't allow inspection of the bodies aboard the plane. They claimed that it was uh, radiation contamination. I'm convinced it's because they were in an advanced state of decomposition, which would have been inconsistent with the official story, because they'd been around for a long time. Then we have our planes in the Pacific, our ships in the Pacific colliding with these big, uh, clumsy cargo carriers? That's absolutely absurd. Yeah. I spent a lot of time aboard naval vessels as a Marine Corps officer, and I'll tell you, those those uh, military vessels are just loaded with electronics. They know everything yeah. that's going on in the air, on the surface, and beneath the water. It's yeah. impossible for that to happen. Yeah, they're completely sophisticated. Kind of- yeah, there's stuff like this that I tell you, and my, my best guess, and I admit it's a guess, but it's my, my educated opinion is that Israel has sure. been behind these events and they're trying to strut mischief in the world. Henry Kissinger about 10 days ago, uh, 10 years ago said that Israel was fated for extinction, that it wouldn't be with us long. It may be that circumstances are, are leading in that direction and they don't like it and they're going to do what they can to take the rest of us with them. We all know about the Samson option where they actually have nuclear weapons in the embassies of the major cities of the Western world yeah, with a yeah. threat that, uh, you know, if Israel were going down, they were going to take the rest of us with them. I understand those nukes have all been neutralized, but that was very much their plan at the time. It's like when Golda Meir acknowledged. So. By the way, we have a few minutes here. Oh, go ahead, Dan. If you have to wait. Uh, I was, I was just going to share my opinion. You asked about the space force. Yes, sir. The Trump go space ahead. Force. Yeah, to me, I can only see that as this, um, 
my opinion. I, I see this as some bad, like, B-movie. Mm. I can, it, it, it's like Muppets in Space or something. <laughs> you know, it just seems so absurd to me. You know, it's like meatballs in space or are they, something. Are they because, really going to do it, Dan? Because, you know, I, you know, that's a good question, you know, uh, because we know so much of what comes from NASA and space is just fake. Right. You know, it's a fraud. I mean, can, can you get a, can you name a bigger fraud than NASA, you know, as part, as a wing of the CIA? Um, so it just seems ridiculous to me. Um, it feels like more like, you know, rah, 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 we're going to space, sort of like Kennedy's, um, you know, uh, moon hoax, you know, which is another topic that Jim has written at length about, you know. Um, well, well, JFK, JFK was, go ahead. JFK wasn't in on it. He actually thought we could go to the moon. He was, they, they, he was didn't, a pawn. they didn't let him know any more about the impossibility going to the moon than they did about the fact that Castro already knew we were coming with a Bay of Pigs because the Soviets had learned the date and informed Castro and the CIA knew that the Soviets had informed Castro. He knew we were coming. Everyone knew except for the commander in chief. Yeah. Because he was being played, so, you know. You, you know, I would love to ask the Donald, you know, right now, if we could get him on the line, if he believes the moon landings were real. Uh, has, has he ever been on record about speaking about those, do you know? Well, I mean, I could get Michael Cohen's number. That, that's yeah, a, that's listen, true. Listen. <laughs> no, Donald, Donald Trump. Yes, I know, Donald, but I could ask him. <laughs> Donald, Trump yeah. no, Donald Trump is nobody's fool. Uh, that's what I, you know, I get that impression. Trump so, knows, Trump knows the score across the board, I guarantee right. you. He knows yeah. the score across the board. Now he's, because so he's not, about he, Dan, because he's not a fool, however, he can allow the impression to yeah. appear that he's doing one thing when he's actually sure. doing another. And if in fact any of this evidence about the massive indictments and so forth is correct, he's been undertaking a very large operation to drain the swamp. Further confirmation, which come from these two massive plane trips down to Little Rock, Arkansas, where they were loaded with boxes and boxes, just tons and tons of files that have to be Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton records sure. and documents. I think that, you know, it may be that Hillary's time. Oh, you has, saw that article, Jim, about the DOJ and the FBI. Well, I don't know which one you're alluding to, Dan. Oh, one- uh, Michael, there are hundreds of articles about the <laughs> DOJ. No, it's about the the – Potential upcoming Hillary investigation why DOJ just happened to go into her hometown. Yeah. Well, I haven't read that article. I'm just aware I've seen two uh, stories about the flights into and out of Little Rock that were just loaded with documents. It's very suggestive to me that the, that her time has come. Yeah, a radio station put that out there, if I recall, on Twitter. Yeah, I've also read that um, these indictments – are essentially a nothing burger, and they're, you know, low-level ICE detainees and low-level drug dealers, and it's being touted as, you know, draining the swamp. Um, I've, I've heard some very good arguments for that. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm not suggesting I know, but, you know, I, I have heard that as well. Uh, we'll see. We'll see here soon, hopefully. Yeah, by, the, by the way, I mean, Dan was making remarks about Bernie Sanders. I think Bernie is completely sincere. Really? Uh, I th- uh, yeah, he was he was physically assaulted uh, when uh, you know 
Hillary got the nomination. He was physically assaulted and threatened, and uh, you know he okay. came to the convention with a with a black eye. Uh, you, I remember you, those photos. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you. The, the, yeah, the, yeah. No, I saw the photos. Her, her, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I think Bernie's an upright guy, and I think uh, he would have made a good president. And we could argue forever just yeah. depends on how things are going to play out with the Donald. You know, I wonder if Bernie and 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 the Donald knew that they were debating a, a body double, right? You know, during those debates, did they know that that was a body double? Because the actually, you know, well, well, I mean, voice, the voice was right. They have this voice box that is Hillary's voice, but it's as you know, Dan. I mean, it's, it wasn't Hillary, right? I, I, I mean, did they know that? You know. Michael, just for the sake of the audience, I have a, a study. It's, ta- it's entitled uh, Fake News Issues of Identity at 153news.net. And I go through the faking of Noah Posner. I go through the, you know, the, the framing of Lee Oswald. Uh, I go through, I think, uh, something in Charlottesville and all that. Would you believe they used a crisis actor in Charlottesville who made her debut at Sandy Hook? That, that the woman who played Susan Bro was supposed to be the mother of Heather Heyer, who actually did not die that day, but the following day from a heart attack, also played the mother of Victoria Soto, who was a teacher at Sandy Hook. I mean, it's outrageous. I'm going to have a blog about that in this series about Sandy Hook because it's also disgusting. It really is. It really is. And, Jim, yeah. we are definitely coming up here at, at the end of the program, but just one more thing since I, I see we do have a tiny bit of time and both of you are definitely invited to a weigh in on this. Um, the last issue uh, I, I wanted to ask you, Jim, was the NFL and the latest going on with them. Have you been keeping an eye on that? Well, what is the latest with the NFL? I don't know the latest, but if you tell me, I'll certainly oh. give you my There's a lot going on with the NFL, not to mention that the NFL will be introducing male cheerleaders. Oh, that's silly. Do you? There's another reason not to watch games. Do you? I just enjoy watching the cheerleaders, but they hardly give them any any TV time anymore at all. Right, right. Do Do you think this was the NFL's way of trying to cater to a female audience? Um, Both can we enjoy? God, I don't think so. (laughs) I think it's just another version of this, you know, this perverted political correctness that the so-called liberals who are actually fascists in disguise are seeking to impose on the country. I mean, Alex Jones has a place in American society that he, he, he himself described himself as a canary in the coal mine. But that's absolutely right. Paul Craig Roberts is a brilliant article about this. First you snuff out the guys you don't like, and then you get somebody else you don't like, and then you get somebody else you don't like. Let's, let me give you here, here, uh, uh, an update about some of this stuff. Uh, other, who would have guessed, uh, uh, this article is entitled, Paul Craig Roberts, Steve State, and MSM will fight to the death against Trump elite closing down tr- truth tellers, the elite are closing down truth tellers. We have, uh, Oh, who would have guessed? Vox is now pushing for a ban of people I don't actually know. Stephen Crowder, <laughs> Southern, Paul, Paul Joseph Watson, I know him. He's a good guy. Stephen Molyneux, Mark Dice, I know him. Gavin McInnes, another harmful extreme career. Here's one. The crackdown continues. Twitter suspends libertarian accounts, including Ron Paul. I mean, this is just disgraceful. Right. Oh, wow. Just, yeah, that's what we were Ron talking Paul. about earlier. Yeah. 
It's just ludicrous. My goodness. Right, yeah. It's happening before our eyes. You have to have it all. You have to have it completely open. Everyone gets a say. Just run the way it used to be. Stop trying to intervene. It's a disgrace. It's disgusting. And the people are reacting. I don't know if you heard, uh, Dan, but I mentioned right off the bat that at, because of all this suppression, Alex Jones has a new newsletter. He has 6 million subscribers to his newsletter in 48 hours. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the reality is he's uh, bigger than the mainstream media. I mean, he has a bigger following than probably all three, all four major networks combined. You can't argue with that. Um, you know, it's amazing. Uh, my thoughts on the NFL, the only question that I have about the NFL this season is, will they sell less tickets than they did last year, right, you know, right. where attendance was down uh, oh, substantially? Sure. I, gar- yeah. I guarantee you. Yeah. Yeah. Sell for tickets. yeah, they're they're continuing to take a knee, and this whole Mel Cheerleader thing doesn't seem to be something that people actually want. Stupid. That's just incredibly stupid. Right. I mean, you, you put Hank Williams Jr. on the NFL, you know. Who really wants? <laughs> Are you ready for some football? You don't put male cheerleaders. Right. Who who really <laughs> wants that, though? Who who in the upper uh, echelon of the NFL uh, sat down and thought, well, you know, this is a great idea, male cheerleaders. This will sell. Probably the same person who wants uh, female Boy Scouts. You know, oh I would say it would be the same entity would probably want those two things. I mean, it's absurd. Yeah, you, I mean, you're right. I don't know anybody that wants that. I've never in my life heard someone say, you know, I really love the NFL. Like, it's my favorite thing. I just wish they had some dudes in a skirt. Yeah, I've never heard that before. You know, who says that? Yeah, I've, I've never heard no one say that about any other <laughs> any other um, professional team out there. Uh, like the NBA, I've never heard anyone say, "Hey, they they should have more male uh, cheerleaders there." <laughs> yeah. So, Michael, I want to thank you again Ridiculous. for having me on. Yes. Thank you so much, Jim, for being a part of the program. And of course, you are both invited anytime you feel um, captivated enough to be on the program. I mean, you, the door is wide open for both of you. Well, thanks so very much, and Dan, nice having you here. Yeah, Dan, thank Michael, you for being a part Michael, of the program. I'm just tickled to death to be here. Thank you, Jim. Um, I'm glad I got this technical difficulty sorted out there. Uh, I'll do my best to not allow that to happen in the future, and I'd like to leave you with this. This is a drill. This is a drill. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you, Dan and Jim, and I'll talk to you guys on the flip side. You got it. You got it, Michael. Thanks so very much. All right. Good night. Take care. Mahalo. Bye-bye. And there they go. I hope you did enjoy tonight's special edition of the Michael Deacon program. And if you enjoy this program and you want to help fund it, go to michaeldeacon.com and click the donate button. This program completely depends on its listeners. That means you sitting there right now. Be a friend and share the program. I'm Michael Deacon. Thank you for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. It's crazy. I had no idea they should have existed before 776.
Flawless victory. 